All right, Derek, this is the big one. This is our final season of Spoop episode for Halloween 2022. Yeah. We got to knock it off big. So we got to have a good guest for this one. So hold on. I got a great idea. Wait, what is that? Is that some sort of like goth Rubik's Cube? Uh, yeah, some mysterious bum hanging around the Winn-Dixie parking lot gave it to me the other day. It's, it's fine. Oh shit, it's comic book writer and novelist Colin Bunn. You solved the box. I came. Now you must podcast with me. We'll discuss pleasure. We'll discuss pain. Then I'll rip your souls apart. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Sounds good. Uh, we'll deal with that later. But uh, welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast where we discuss movies from all eras, subgenres, their themes, their spoopiness for season of spoop, their cursed objects in this case. And uh, we yep. discuss them from the standpoint of a horror junkie like me, your boy Mansfield, and my cowardly co-host Derek. So we are going to be diving in again. This is our big Halloween episode for 2022 season of Spoop. Big guest, big movie. Yeah. yeah. We are going to be covering Hellraiser. Seems appropriate considering the new one is out and all the attention has been on this franchise lately. And we are going to be discussing that movie with Cullen Bunn. What is up, my dude? How have you been? I've been good. Obviously, I've not been uh, keeping up with how to do introductions. I, I know I failed you several times before that, <laughs> that worked out. No, no, it's fine. No, it's perfect. And one would say that this is our ultimate cursed object movie, like, I can't think of a more important cursed object horror movie than Hellraiser and the Lament Configuration is the most cursed object in movie history, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Hell yeah. I can't think of a, I mean, it, it's certainly the most iconic at this point, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so much so that I have literally met people who have it tattooed on their body. So it is definitely iconic. But yeah, before we get into that, let's catch up with you a little bit. So once again, you are the author of such horror comics as Hero County. I actually saw recently that you have a graphic audio drama version of Hero County coming out. Hero County Observer. That's great. Of your book with artist Tyler Crook. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Harrow County wrapped up a couple of years years ago, the main series. And since then, we've done a few series called uh, Tales from Harrow County, which more of a sequel series to the original. It's not a continuation as much as a sequel. So we've done a couple of those, but there's been yeah a lot of cool Harrow County activity. We uh, did this audio drama and it's more than an audio book. I mean, it's like an audio play there. I mean, there's sound effects and different voices and narration. It's a really interesting way to hear the original story. And it's going to be released in two parts. The first one collects essentially the first 16 issues i guess and then okay, the, nice. the next one will be the the next 16 issues in life hester had been a healing woman she cured frailties and ailments with whispered incantations chasing them away as easily as shooing stray tomcats for a time folk turned a blind eye when livestock started dying in hester's presence but they accepted the sacrifice saying there must be a trade or what is taken must be given. But they could no longer sit idly by when they discovered how she fed her vile companions and how she strengthened her own supernatural gifts. Enough was enough. And so they put her to the bullet, blade, and noose. And finally, 
fire. As her skin peels away from the flesh, Hester Beck trembles and hisses. No, the end. I'll be back again. Keep watch and be ready. But I'll see you all once more. There was truth in the dead woman's words. A promise to revisit the sins of the day, to judge and punish those iniquities that not even the rain could wash away. So that's out. We just launched a Kickstarter for a Harrow County board game that launched just a couple of days ago. Interesting. Well, okay. I'm going to have to go and uh, kickstart that because we were just talking off air about how like I'm on Kickstarter a lot. Yeah, no, it's a super cool game put together by uh, Off the Page Games. They did an adaptation of Matt Kent's Mind Management was their first game huh. and uh, Harrow County is their next game. That's awesome. But uh, it's, it's a super cool looking game. Yeah, and uh, just other credits of yours, of course, include Deadpool Kills Marvel Universe, The Damned, The Six Gun, Magneto, Agent Venom, Venomverse. Actually, most recently, and this was one that I don't know how I missed this one when it was coming out, but I read through all of the issues in like one sitting. Last book you'll ever read from Vault Comics. I really enjoyed that one that, one that you wrote. Yeah, in. thank you. In a way, it's kind of a cursed book. What's supposed to be like a philosophical self-help book. Right. People kind of start taking it a little too seriously and it goes in, let's say, apocalypse apocalyptic directions that you're not necessarily like see coming and I, I really enjoyed that story as well yeah it's a cool book it was an eight issue series it's just come out in trade paperback so it's it's readily available if people want to read it but yeah it's it's like you just you said it follows this author who's written this book about surviving the collapse of society so to speak and the thing is society is collapsing and we're left to wonder if this author is somehow the prophet of this collapse is she causing it yeah as, as all these things are going on around her. I really enjoyed that, and the art was beautiful in that book. Oh, yeah, I, uh, absolutely. More recently, um, at the time this recording drops, I think at least three issues will be out. They're doing a mini-series for Dark Horse called Shock Shop. Yeah. It's basically a dual comic book. One side, you literally flip it over, and it's a different comic on the back. Huh. It's two horror stories in one. And I read the first issue. I have the second issue upstairs in my stack. I haven't read it yet, but I really enjoyed the first issue. Uh, that first story is like a guy renting a house after... After a painful divorce turns out to be haunted and things start kind of changing in his life and you think it's these special spirits and these good spirits but you know there's always like more than meets the eye and then also the uh, something in the woods and in the dark friends all going on a camping trip and are being stalked in the forest and it just kind of goes from there yeah and you haven't read the second issue both of those go in some crazy directions in the second issue so yeah it's a yeah. it's a fun book i'm hoping my goal with it's always been to keep continue doing it because there's a lot of anthology books out there but this one four issues will collect two longer horror stories and i can tell any kind of horror tale in these books which is what i really like about them Hell yeah. Yeah. You're keeping busy. I'm trying. Yeah. And speaking of, I actually just checked out, and this is a total shift of tone, but uh, I checked out The Ghoul Next Door and really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. Cat yeah. Ferris's artwork was great. Very good story. It's, it's more of a YA story, which is why I said it's kind of a tonal shift from what we're talking about. This is definitely one that you could hand your kids and they would enjoy. It's got a very good kind of heart at the center of it. Great message. Even as an adult, I related a lot to what the story is <laughs> dealing with. So I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, that well, was thank you. definitely, yeah. definitely an enjoyable read. Yeah, it's a great book if you have kids, especially this time of year. You know, you, 
that you have kids who like yeah. spooky stories. It's a horror story, but it is geared towards kids. And it's about, you know, a boy who befriends a, a ghoul and they form this kind of unlikely partnership and, and go on adventures. And uh, the first book is A Ghoul Next Door. And then there is a sequel book out now called uh, Up to No Ghoul, which is it continues huh. the adventures of these two characters. Awesome. Nice. I got to check that one out. I'd be reminisced because I think last time you were on, I brought up Cold Spots was one that you'd put out. Five issue mini. I really enjoyed The Empty Man. More and more people are going to that movie. And anytime we have come across someone saying like our past guest Shelby Scott just recently came across it and I recommended go read the comics. It's all great. But my personal favorite, once again, is still The Unsound. I loved that miniseries. Well, thank you. Yeah. So much. Uh, yeah, I, I appreciate that. And very much along the lines of this movie we're discussing. A lot of similar themes, a lot of similar feel and tone to it. Your story, your aggression yeah. is one that yeah. I read a while back and uh, definitely enjoyed it. That is one that I would also recommend people check out if they want to see more of your work. Yeah, for sure. The, the movie we're talking about tonight, just the works of the creator has uh, influenced me a lot, obviously. And I think if you look at books like Regression or or The Unsound, I think is a the, the I think in some yeah. cases the, the influences are right there, you know, on my sleeve so to speak oh yeah yeah i do appreciate that like when i'm reading through one of your comics specifically i can kind of tell because there's some people who like just kind of not borrow or rip off that's a bad way of saying it but they just kind of like are very like just doing the same thing whereas you more just wear the influences on your sleeve and then do your own kind of thing but I, it's really nice to like read through something and be like he's channeling carpenter here which we had you on last for prince of darkness right he's channeling clive barker now you're not afraid of gore either in certain stories, but then you're also not afraid to lean into bloodless and supernatural right. either, which yeah. is just kind of nice to have that whole variety for people because some people don't like gore and some people don't like supernatural. Right. So there's a little bit of something for everybody in your work. That's the goal, at least. Awesome. Well, let's shift a little bit into some recommendations that we might have. Um, we'll try to keep this a little bit light this time because we've got a big movie to talk through, certainly. <laughs> but yeah. Cullen, let's start with you. What other horror-related media have you dipped into lately that you've enjoyed, whether it's movies, TV shows, games, books, anything in particular? So right now I am reading a novel. It, it's been out for a couple of years, and it's it sat on my shelf for my to-be-read pile for a long while. My Heart is a Chainsaw. Are you guys familiar with this book? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I read it, recommended it a while back. I loved it. Yeah. So, I mean, I've really been enjoying it. It's a slasher story, but it's also my, like a history lesson and a study of the slasher genre. And uh, it's by Stephen Graham Jones. It's a terrific, terrific book. When we get done recording, I have my last 25 pages to finish the novel tonight. So that's my evening plan for me. Hell yeah. Cool. That's the one about the girl who thinks she's in a slasher. Yeah. But then like things start happening that maybe there's something there. In a nutshell, yeah. Right. Yeah. And she loves slasher movies. She's like the expert on slasher. A friend of mine is reading it. We read books at the same time. And he described it as a ready player one for the slasher genre. And I think that's a pretty good description in a lot of ways. So yeah. it's a lot of fun. I need to bump this up on my read list then because I've been going through a lot of obscure slashers lately. So this would be a good one to check out then for me. I think you would enjoy it at this point because you've seen enough of the stuff now that yeah. or at least you're more aware of the titles because you've tangentially been digging into everything else. I think this is a good point where you would enjoy jumping into that and not be totally like, I don't know what they're talking about, you know? Yeah. Cullen, the only thing I would say is 
be ready I'm for ready. that ending. I'm ready. I'm and ready. just know that he has already said, I have another one coming out. All right. Interesting. Definitely, definitely enjoyed it. Looking forward to the new one. Cool. Anything else you want to mention? I mention this book every time, but it's spoopy season, as you said. Yeah. If I didn't mention it last time, I should mention it now. There's a graphic novella by Scott Hampton called The Upturned Stone. No, you did not. Okay. So this book, it's a you know slightly oversized old school graphic novel, maybe 50, 60 pages fully painted throughout it is perfect for halloween it came out from heavy metal okay i think you can still get them pretty cheap but it's about a group of friends on halloween they find this pumpkin in a graveyard and they take this pumpkin home with them this massive pumpkin and one of their moms makes a pumpkin pie out of it out of this graveyard pumpkin they start seeing spirits and the spirits are asking them to do things it's got such a nice feel it's charming it's bloodless but it's really scary. You should definitely check it out if you haven't read it. The Upturned Stone. I recommend it every chance I get because it's such a unique read. Like I said, it's from Heavy Metal. And at least a couple of years ago, they were still readily available on the Heavy Metal website at these really nice hardcover novellas. Just wrote that one down. And I pulled up the hardcover, uh, at least on Amazon, it's there. And it's not too expensive either. That premise is awesome. I, I kind of dig that. It's a simple premise, but really like effective for the Halloween season. Yeah, and it's it's perfect for it's kind of got a little bit of a Bradbury feel to it, and it's it's just really good for this time of year. Nice, cool, Derek. What about you, sir? What have you got? I'll spring up one thing, and it's really only the first two episodes of this anthology series, but I have to bring up especially the first episode because it is directed by a horror great. I'm going to bring up Freddy's Nightmares, the Nightmare on Elm Street TV show. That's right. I forgot you said you were watching through this. Amy's haunted by a bad dream. It was my fault. How did you find out? I dreamed it. A nightmare that could be real. The little girl in the car was me. Does she have the power to change the past? I can bring back my mother. Or will Freddy destroy her future? Accidents happen. On the next Nightmare on Elm Street, the series Freddy's Nightmares. Yeah, it ran from uh, October 1988 through March 1990. Two seasons, 44 episodes. Each episode is 40 plus minutes long. I've only watched the first two or three episodes. I am going to make my way through all of them. The first one grabbed me enough that I want to keep going. Well, the first one's directed by Toby Hooper, right? Yeah. Toby Hooper, yeah. Okay. So that's why I want to bring it up. First episode's called No More Mr. Nice Guy. Toby Hooper directs it. And it's kind of a alternate history of Freddy Krueger's origin. Yeah. How he was arrested, what he was arrested for, and him getting burned alive. And then the second half of the episode is him slowly getting his revenge on like the police officer who caught him and like his family. And apparently later on in the season, one of the ep uh, episodes later in the season will be a direct sequel to this first episode. So it's kind of out of order. But yeah, it has a little bit of that Toby Hooper like crazy energy to it. And granted, you can tell they're kind of working within the limitations of like syndicated TV. There's actually surprisingly some blood in it, but for the most part, kills are kind of done off screen. Sure. There's a little bit of that late 80s radical energy that you kind of see in, in stuff around this. Radical. Yeah, yeah. radical. Yeah. <laughs> it does look like something a little bit out of time. It looks very 90s, even though it came out in 88. It looks very early 90s kind of TV. But uh, I enjoyed it. The first episode was actually kind of fun. I'm glad that they actually 
had Wes Craven on for some of it to produce. Robert England presents each episode as Freddy Krueger. I enjoyed it. The second episode actually follows like a kid who's working in a fast food restaurant for his dad. That goes in really dark directions because like kid gets murdered and then like <laughs> follows his girlfriend who's like hallucinating him. His ghost follows her like in the hospital now being tormented by like nightmares and what's real and what's not. There is a little bit of Lynchian energy, especially to the second episode. All of them are on Tubi TV. That's how I watched the first two episodes. If you're a Freddy super fan, Damien, I'm talking to you, bud. I'm sure you've seen these. But yeah, like if if you're a Freddy super fan, Freddy's Nightmares is actually a pretty interesting watch so far. Go check it out. It's all on Tubi for free. Just got to deal with a couple commercials. That's it. And first episode's directed by the great Toby Hooper. RIP. So yeah. I have always written this off because... It really doesn't have anything to do with Freddy Krueger. You know, I just kind of figured like, yeah, why bother? It's if it's just another anthology show and it doesn't necessarily have the reputation of a Tales from the Crypt or something like that, which, you know, as much as I like Tales from the Crypt, there's a lot of duds in that show, too. But over the years, I have heard more and more and more people going back and rediscovering that show and saying, oh, there's actually some really good stuff in here. I've heard that the Toby Hooper episode in particular is pretty gnarly. Yeah. So I definitely got to add that to my list and check it out once I get a little bit more time here soon. Yeah, for you being such a Toby Hooper fan, I'm kind of surprised you never watched at least the first episode. There's still like two or three things, man, I have not gotten around to for whatever reason. It's not like I don't have access to them. Uh, Just I've been dragging my feet on them. Yeah, I mean, I I love Carpenter and there's a ton of stuff I still haven't checked out of his. So like I get it. But yeah, I remember the show. I mean, I don't remember many specific episodes. I remember that first episode pretty clearly because it was the freddy episode but yeah maybe i didn't realize it was on tubi so maybe i'll check it out yeah a lot of stuff is on tubi especially horror tubi's great like, it's tubi's amazing <laughs> Tubi's yeah. one of those weird wild i hope they keep it free and you know keep the catalog that they have now because there's a lot of good stuff on there dude half the movies we've covered in like the last several months i've watched on tubi like, yeah <laughs> they've got a lot of stuff and they have a lot of very strange stuff for instance the episode we just did with john brandon where we discussed sov horror they had stuff on there that i was not going to be able to find anywhere else that's how i watched feeders i watched feeders on yeah tubi. feeders was on there tales from the quad dead zone was on yeah. tubi i mean they had a lot of random stuff that was on there i was very surprised oh one more thing i did want to bring up about freddy's nightmares by the way to go off what you were saying though aaron i don't know how much freddy is involved in future episodes beyond presenting them i think he shows up in episodes here and there that are about him but for the most part it is other characters going through weird nightmares shit throughout the town when you're watching it it feels Feels like they really tried to push the boundaries and they had to like cut shit to be proper for syndication and sure enough when i looked up stuff they were saying that they pushed the limit on pretty much most episodes just to see what they could get away with sure to kind of stay as true to nightmare on elm street they wind up cutting like stuff all the time specifically anything dealing with too much violence and of course sex it's not like a totally like dud of a show. They're they're really trying to do something here. And I am glad that like it at least had two seasons. And I'm glad that at least Freddy is sort of a part of it. Because from what I hear, the Friday the 13th TV show has absolutely nothing to do with Jason or his mother. Not a thing. Not a thing although, yeah. although it is a heavy cursed object show. Oh, is it really? Yes. That's yeah. the premise. Yes. It's, it's all about cursed objects. Gotcha. Gotcha. But yeah, that's all I got. Freddy's Nightmares. Check that out. Cool. Well, uh, like... 
a lot of people this month. I have been watching through the Dahmer series on Netflix. My mom and I have been watching that together while I'm still crashing at their house while we're in the process of moving. Stars Evan Peters as Jeffrey Dahmer. Niecy Nash is in it. Richard Jenkins is in it. Molly Ringwald's in it. It's interesting. I will say that. It is not nearly as campy and over-the-top ridiculous as other Ryan Murphy stuff tends to be. This feels way more like it was pulling cues from David Fincher. It's very interesting from the standpoint that it focuses a lot on the victims and their families, the people surrounding this whole story, and how it impacted them. It focuses a lot on how every level of authority just failed massively and how so much of what happened could have been avoided had people not just given this guy the benefit of the doubt over and over and over. So it's definitely an interesting watch. I think at this point, you know, most of America's probably seen it already, but that was an interesting watch. Also checked out Werewolf by Night, which is the new Marvel special presentation on Disney+. Plus. This Halloween... You can't escape the shock, the terror of Werewolf by Night. Tonight, it is every hunter for themselves. Good luck. I'll be rotting for you. But one of you is a monster masquerading as one of our own. I can't wait to find out what breed of evil you are. You'll wanna see this, darling. Please don't do this. But it's fun. It's black and white. It is meant to kind of emulate the 1930s universal horror stuff and the hammer horror stuff. This is a character from, I believe, the 70s that had his own book for a while and kind of weaved in and out of a lot of the more horror-related Marvel characters like Moon Knight and Blade and Ghost Rider and Doctor Strange and all that crowd. Funny enough, the last time I saw him, because it's Jack Russell, that's the name of the character. Lol. lol. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that naming convention from early comic book days. But uh, I have to laugh because the last time I saw him, I think it was in one of the Deadpool series. Deadpool's at the time wife, who was like queen of the monsters, was cheating on Deadpool with him. Yeah. And Deadpool like blows his head off in revenge. But like he can regenerate anything, including his head and then like leaves his wife. But uh, the last couple of times I've seen him pop up, he's been a little bit more of a comedic relief. So I'm hoping that like this MCU Kind of not necessarily even a movie. It's more of a TV special. Right. Yeah, it's like one hour and you're done. Yeah, I'd like to see uh, see his character using uh, a little bit more serious tone. Yeah, I think he's due for it. But yeah, it was it was interesting. So this is directed by Michael Giacchino 
the composer. He pitched this to Marvel, said, yo, I want to do this. And they rolled with it. So good on him for like getting his toes into that whole arena. Hey, it introduces uh, Elsa Bloodstone. So yeah, played by Lauren Donnelly. She was great. Gael yep. Garcia Bernal plays Jack Russell. Harriet Harris was also in this, which having seen her earlier this year in Licorice Pizza, where she's in it for like five minutes and steals the entire scene just being this old lich. Um, it was kind of hilarious seeing her in this where she's this crazy occult lady. So yeah, that special was fun. If you have Disney Plus, check it out. The last thing I want to bring up real quick, I figured, okay, we're doing Clive Barker. Let me find something Clive Barker I've not touched because I have read through most of his stuff at this point and I've definitely seen a lot of the movies that his work has inspired. Uh, but I picked up Cold Hard Canyon after having two different people recommend this to me completely separate of each other. This is a 2001 novel that he wrote clearly influenced by his experience in Hollywood, working with different levels of Hollywood executives and studios and stars and egos and drama and nastiness and just all of the history of Hollywood culture. <laughs> his Mulholland Drive. Kind of. It's his Mulholland Drive mixed with a little bit of Dracula with a little bit of The Haunting, I guess. It is about a starlet from the silent film era. Her manager slash sometimes lover imports this tile wall piece by piece from a monastery in Hungary where she's originally from. It's this massive tile wall that's essentially like a Hieronymus Bosch painting. It is just every gross monster <laughs> sadomasochistic scene of fucking killing, eating, destroying just everything that you can imagine like medieval hell would be essentially. Yeah, like any of his paintings of hell. Yeah, yeah. the wall kind of emanates <laughs> this power. So he imports this whole thing back tile by tile and installs all of it in this area of her Hollywood Hills mansion in Cold Heart Canyon. And then you kind of come to find out that she had been throwing giant hedonistic parties there with all of the original Hollywood stars and starlets and lots of awful shit went down there and dot 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 some of those people's spirits might still be haunting the place. So then it flashes forward to modern day and there's kind of an actor who's kind of on the back end of his career. You know, he is on the slump end where he's a little bit old He's not as hot. He's in less good shape. He is convalescing there after getting some botched plastic surgery. And then suddenly he meets this woman who has supposedly been alive since the 1920s, right? And so there's this weird seduction that's happening with them. There is another character who is incredibly interesting and has an amazing evolution throughout the course of this story. She is the head of this actor's fan club. And at first she comes off as a ditz and she's overweight. She is just kind of this Midwest frump and she's obsessed with this actor and she goes to like see if he's okay because she's just that obsessed but she gets pulled into this crazy world and where her character goes by the end is incredible she's such a well-written character the entire story is worth going through for where she ends up by the end it's interesting too how this story really changes focus and what character you're tracking over the course of it because you think okay it's going to be about this starlet from the 20s and then you think oh it's going to be about this actor guy and then by the end of it 
kind of ends up being the fan club woman's story. And, you know, I have been reading Clive Barker stuff for years. I've seen a lot of the movies for years. And for the reputation that he has as being so extreme and so sexual and, you know, S&M and just all this stuff, the level of ridiculous debauchery in this book is so far past anything else of his that I have read. <laughs> like, for every book and movie where, like, okay, hard nipples, hard dicks, occasional body fluids, like, that kind of stuff that comes up in his books. This is beyond ridiculous in every way, <laughs> shape, and form. Let's just say there's an Island of Dr. Moreau element to this where the ghosts (laughs) of all these old Hollywood stars have been fucking all of the animals in the area and creating these insane human animal hybrids that like haunt the grounds of this place. Right. And there's just weird, horny peacock human hybrids running around. And (laughs) it's one of the more banana things I've ever 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 read but it's incredibly (laughs) weird and idiosyncratic and unique in that way that clive barker writes i mean just you know there's nobody like him as far as his weird level of insanity that he kind of pulls in and once i got through the book i was like okay this is kind of a perfect pairing to talk about with hellraiser of all things because like i said he's clearly reflecting on a lot of his time in the industry and just what he took of the entire thing and how obsessive we are with movies and movie culture and stardom and everything else but it was incredibly nuts so at first i was thinking like man this premise is really cool why had they never adapted this into a movie or a tv show and then you get to the scene where like a peacock human hybrid with a full boner is running after this woman in this garden that's haunted by ghosts and you're just like okay that's why (laughs) (laughs) that's absolutely why they are not adapting this into a movie yeah it's kind of amazing they were able to adapt hellraiser and like make it palatable yeah with all the nonsense like even in that story oh and that's the thing hellbound heart i just revisited it and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second oh it's tame it's super tame compared, compared to, this, to where yeah. cold heart canyon goes so but did you enjoy it i, I enjoyed the book it was absolutely yeah. bananas and the character work and it was great it's very very interesting i i very much enjoyed it so i would certainly recommend it but just be aware it is gonna be like the most extreme kind of ludicrous bananas in every way that you can think so i I think that that kind of goes with any clyde barker work too just like be aware there's a lot of sadomasochism oh whatever i mean some light snm is fine but you know i don't know there's some wild stuff that happens in cold heart canyon that some people could definitely be a little bit upset with so yeah definitely go into that one with a little bit of your foot on the brakes i guess and just see how you deal with it cool well that's all i wanted to mention so let's go ahead and jump into hellraiser So this is Clive Barker's debut feature film from 1987. This is a British cosmic horror film about terrible hedonistic people using a cursed puzzle box to summon S&M demons and gain access to otherworldly power and pleasure. So this movie has spawned 10 sequels. It now has a reboot officially that just came out. Like I said, lots and lots and lots of leather enthusiasts who hold this movie in high regard. I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. (laughs) 
beyond any terror you have imagined. A nightmare. Unlike anything you have witnessed, is born. Because within these walls, the unholy is unleashed. This is definitely one of my favorites. I have liked this movie ever since I saw it in high school. Weirdly enough, Derek, our college buddy Rob, this is a movie that he and I bonded over, weirdly enough. Well, we bonded over the joke about this movie from Venture Brothers. Pleasure toast. Almost got it. (laughs) Blue side keeps getting messed up when I do the Submit to desire. I offer you ultimate pleasure. Your thirst, your lust is hunger. Submit to my toast, my pleasure toast. You hunger for it. Wait, I've got it. Look, all sides. (sighs) Super. Well, ta-da. Um, so yeah, this definitely has always been one of my favorites. Derek, have you seen this before we watched it just now? So this is one of those movies that going with the whole tone of our show, never seen um, until now. Cause like most of the other like horror classics I didn't watch. I've at least seen scenes from or like watched a bunch parts out of context. And I've seen like the big parts from Hellraiser, like 101 best scares and movies and those kind of. Sure. And I know the idea, like I know all the pop culture references of Hellraiser and all that. Yeah. So I knew all that stuff, but I had actually never even really seen like really paid attention to like a single scene from this movie. So this is my first viewing, but it's really like my first viewing in the in a way that I didn't know what to expect at all. Well, really seeing it all in context and yeah. context yeah seeing it for what it is in and of itself with no other discussion around it yeah for this being like one of the greatest horror movies ever made because i i'd say this is right up there with any of them and it's always in like the top 50 horror movies ever made this is probably in the top 50 this one's way more intense than other ones we've covered in the past (laughs) (laughs) like way more intense yeah cullen i'm assuming you have definitely seen this tell us a little bit about what your background with this movie is and i guess just barker's work in general yeah i had a friend in high school that i remember she was my conduit to horror movies because she would go see every horror movie and then on the Monday after she saw them she'd tell us all about them on the bus so she told us about Hellraiser on the bus one morning and then it was probably a year or two after that that I saw it but you know I got into Clive Barker's work I guess I thought relatively early on but I'm pretty sure Hellraiser had already come out by the time I got into it but I remember picking up the three books of blood collections that were out at Walden Books I have fond memories of the covers but they weren't great covers these weird faces <laughs> on them that look like monster masks with light pouring out of the eyes i, I know which ones <laughs> you're talking about yeah but hellraiser or hellbound heart wasn't in those it was its own thing collected in another novella and i read that a little while it was, it was a few a year or two later that i actually read that i remember there was a time that for whatever reason i had hellbound heart on audiobook it was read by clive barker and i must have listened to that audiobook four or five dozen times just for whatever reason i was really into listening to clive barker read the hellbound heart yeah so <laughs> yeah he's got a great voice yeah 
this story in and of itself, I find to be incredibly interesting. And there's so many different layers that you can kind of peel at, like little folds of flesh away from the muscle yeah. tissue, right? But the thing that astounded me is both adaptations are done by the same guy. Yeah. He wrote The Hellbound Heart, and then he turned around, did the screenplay, and directed his own adaptation of his own story. And they both make changes. A lot of the bones are the same, but they make changes to even the way the characters operate in some ways, and both work so well. Yeah. This adaptation works so, so well that again it's regarded as one of the horror greats i mean pinhead himself is a horror icon with freddy and jason and all of them as well yeah and it's incredibly rare too that that ever works out right that an author adapts their own book but then adapts it into a completely other medium yeah it would be one thing you know for cullen to adapt some of his own work into a screenplay that is still literary. It's different if Cullen all of a sudden was just like, yo, I'm going to direct my own adaptation of regression. Would you feel comfortable doing that? But that's a hell of a task for anybody to do. Hell yeah, I would. <laughs> <laughs> I will say up top, yes, I know it's technically the Hell Priest and not Pinhead. Yeah, get it Yes, straight. I know that. <laughs> I'll probably say Pinhead gets just most people. Yeah, force of habit. I do actually prefer the Hell Priest. I think that's a better character name than Pinhead. Yeah, and allegedly he has an actual actual Cenobite name that Clive knows and Clive will one day reveal to everybody through some official work he has planned. So we'll see. Didn't know that. But yeah, Clive Barker. So the dude himself, we have not really ever gotten to, which, you know, blows my mind because I have been telling you forever, like, yo, I want to do Hellraiser. I want to do Nightbreed. I want to do Lord of Illusions. You know, not just those three things, but those are the three that he directed himself. But then The Forbidden was the basis for Candyman, which is also one of my favorites you know so besides that and then just his other work in general all of his novels and his comics which i have mentioned on here he has a wild chunk of comics from the early 90s under that razor line imprint with marvel just so much stuff and it's surprising that we still haven't gotten to it yet we're almost 100 episodes into this show and there's still just so much we've not been able to touch yet well i mean obviously like the three he directed are all bangers because it's hellraiser nightbreed and lord of the illusions they're all held in very high regard by the horror community certainly yeah yeah like those three are on our list for sure but like i forget even the fucking the midnight meat trade from 2008 was based (laughs) off of his story like that's one of the books of blood stories what about rawhead rex rawhead rex yeah yeah it's kind of crazy to me just because like i i always forget the connection to Candyman. he basically wrote the Candyman story that always slips my mind. And then you didn't mention Aaron that he also did video games as well. Yeah. Like he has a couple Clyde Barker video games. Clyde Barker's The Undying from 2001 is still regarded as a pretty decent horror shooter. So like, yeah, this dude is like all over the place. Yeah. yeah. But his creative career proper began in theater. So he was working with his own theater group, essentially. I mean, they had a bunch of different names. They were the Hydra Theater Company and then the Theater of the Imagination and the Mute Pantomime Theater. Um, Eventually, they were just the dog company as of 1978. But it was a lot of the same friends and collaborators that he would go on to work with on these other projects, like Doug Bradley and Peter Atkins. Like They were all with him from the beginning. He shifted to literary writing somewhere in 82, 83. That's where his first short story collection, Books of Blood, came out. And that's kind of what really put him on the map initially. The damn 
Damnation Game was another one of his major novels that came out in 85. At this time, he was making ends meet as a hustler. Really? And so his experience doing that influenced a lot of his work as well, too. I was about to say, like, that had to have influenced it, yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the main things that influenced the Hellbound Heart story. I mean, he wanted to make that jump into actual film, and so he wrote Hellbound Heart with the intention of that being something that he could then adapt into film. Again, his experiences working as a sex worker kind of influenced a lot of that story. Just the whole push-pull of different power dynamics, gender dynamics, just bodies in general, and how that relates to like our own identities and sense of power. There's a lot of interesting stuff that he took from his real life and worked into this story, uh, which we'll get into more of that in a second. But around the same time, you know, as he was kind of shifting into filmmaking he wrote the screenplays for underworld and rawhead rex like we just joked about which both of which aren't great there's things i like about rawhead rex just because it's kind of ridiculous but he is just a giant potato monster peeing on priests (laughs) (laughs) he was not happy with how both of those turned out right he wasn't happy about how little control he had over the story decided to jump headfirst into directing himself just to like keep the story pure to what he wanted it to be what a badass move to do that be like oh yeah you fucked up my that adaptations i'm just gonna do it myself yeah that's what i was joking about earlier to you cullen not that any of your work has been massively like oh god i hate you know whatever this adaptation is more just if you know that you could do it and pull it off would you hell yeah you would everybody would right Right. but all of his previous experience directing was really just doing these short film adaptations of two of his plays one of which was the forbidden which is the story that Candyman was based on and he did those with his theater troupe there were very early shades of pinhead and the puzzle box in those stories weirdly enough well and to the point where like a lot of fans of hellraiser just the whole franchise they're the two fan theories that i always come across are one event horizon takes place in the same universe as hellraiser yeah lol the spaceship is a lament configuration it's a puzzle box where am i going we will need eyes to see we have such sights to show you But the second one that I always come across and more often is that Candyman is actually either a Cenobite or another agent of hell or a different type of hell that's separate from the labyrinth or wherever the Cenobites come from. Do you believe in me? Keep away from me! I have the child. Allow me to take you or he will die in your place. Your disbelief destroyed the faith of my congregation. Without them, I am nothing. So I was obliged to come. And now, I must kill you. Your death will be a tale to frighten children, to make lovers cling closer in their rapture. Come with me, and be immortal. That's a neat fan theory. I think that's that's kind of neat. And like in a day and age where like, well, we already have Stephen King since the 70s having a shared universe in his books. Yeah. And now we have them see you as the biggest thing pop culture juggernaut in the world. You know, it's kind of fun to think. What if Candyman is like in the same universe as as uh, the Hell Priest? I mean, that could be the case. I mean, the Scarlet Gospels brings together Lord of Illusions and the Hellraiser stuff in a, an interesting way. Yep. Yeah. And because uh, it, it like what's the detective, the detective. like the supernatural yeah. detective? 
Harry Demore, yeah. Yeah, Demore. Basically fights the Hellpriest, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I like the idea that these characters could exist and interact. I mean, I mean, the comics did it. There was a the Marvel yes. run on on Nightbreed. I'm pretty sure had a Hellraiser crossover. Uh, I know that it had a Rawhead Rex crossover with Nightbreed. Yes, I, I definitely have that chunk of stuff. I'm still working my way through some of the older stuff, but the Harrowers was another good weird kind of tie-in where it was about this group of people who you know are finding all the puzzle box objects around the world that are gateways, and they are going into hell and like rescuing people from hell it kind of crossed paths with a lot of his other work was it in the comics where uh kirstie basically becomes the new hell priest so that's in the boom comic series yeah. from the boom comics a decade so, yeah. Ago. yeah yeah and it kind of does the same thing where harry demore crosses over into that the harrowers crosses over into that kirstie does make a deal with the hell priest where they essentially swap places he becomes immortal again and she becomes the new hell priest but yeah to that whole idea what I love is the Cenobites are not just blanket demons. They're just a type of demon. They're like the middle management demon. They are specifically the <laughs> Order of the Gash. <laughs> what a good name, yeah. by the way, for like a cultish yeah. like horror <laughs> group for the Order of the Gash. Yeah, they are just like this one cult within hell. You know, even in the sequels, in number four, the Angelique demon that they bring forth, she is described as being like a demon from an older version of hell. You know, Pinhead represents hell with order and less chaos blah 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 so the idea that all of Barker's stuff is interconnected can certainly certainly be put out there what, what do they call themselves explorers on like the realm of physical experience between pleasure and pain explorers yeah. on the <laughs> darkest regions of human experience yeah yeah that's some good shit this is a very quotable movie by the way oh yeah totally <laughs> so he'd go on to release Weave World which is something I mentioned several months back I also I read that Weave World has an appearance of the Cenobites. I think they're called the Surgeons in Wee World. Slightly, yes. Yeah, from what I remember, yeah. they they are kind of a background thing that floats through. But yeah, that came out the same year as Hellraiser the movie. He would go on to release Cabal in 88, which would be adapted into Nightbreed in 1990, Imagica in 91, The Thief of Always in 92, which I fucking love. His short story, The Forbidden, like we mentioned, was adapted into Candyman that same year as well. He created a comic book imprint with Marvel in 1993 called Razorline. So there were spinoff series, like we already said, for Hellraiser, for Rawhead Rex, Nightbreed. There were a couple of other things, the Harrowers. There were several things that he had on that he did one called hokum and hex and the harrowers okay. yeah yes yeah did they cross over into the marvel universe proper or were they just like separate completely no this was all like a separate horror imprint okay that's good because that would have been weird if fucking clyde barker characters are showing up and talking to spider-man <laughs> 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 yeah, imagine a showdown between Doctor Doom and the Hell Priest. Egos clash. That would be pretty amazing, be pretty to be good. honest with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, his last directing gig was adapting another one of his books of blood stories into Lord of Illusions in 95. So that was kind of the end of his directing career. He did Sacrament in 96, Galilee in 98, and the Aberrat series was in the 2000s. Is there a specific reason why he, he left directing after that? Because, I mean, like I said, three home runs right there. One home run. Movies. Nightbreed was massively a disaster. Oh, like at the that, time, that yeah. production was a giant mess. You know, that is one of the most famous what could have been 
aspects of a movie, you know, this lost cut. We've seen kind of a cobbled together version of that called the Cabal Cut. But that was a movie that largely he got shafted in every way that he turned by the studio. I'm seeing it in retrospect as the horror fan of like now You're it's seeing it as people now looking back yeah. on it being like, oh, yeah, we love this movie. Yeah. Which is the story of so many horror movies. Yeah. And frankly, Lore of Illusions was the same way. I mean, people look back on it now and they're like, oh, yeah, no, that movie's super wild. A lot of fun. At the time, not a huge hit. Definitely not critically liked. So, no, I mean, Hellraiser was his really only main hit of his own in terms of directing. Right. You know, and I would love to see him come back and direct anything you know anything he wanted to essentially i just think he's over it you know he did it you know i could say i've done it i did at least these you know three things as good as i can and i'm out of here i mean he still writes he's got a book of poetry that's supposed to be coming out one of these days and he's a fucking insane painter man have you seen any of his paintings derek no i haven't they're wild oh yeah cullen have you seen any of them yeah i've seen a lot of it it's banana stuff i i read an interview where somebody went to go sit down and help him write something and when they said that when they got into his house, it was just canvases stacked. Yeah, there's a video of that somewhere that I've seen not that long ago of him going through and he's got canvas after canvas everywhere. And then out in like a shed, there's even more canvases that he's just like, these are trash, but they're just they're awesome paintings has just thrown out there. Yeah. Is he a perfectionist? Do you think I, I honestly didn't really like watch any interviews with him or read up too, too much on like what he is like as a person, but it seems like with all this art output he does, it seems that way to me. My impression is no, because if he were a perfectionist, I don't think he would have half the output he does. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's just my impression. Obviously, I don't know the man. But, uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily think so. Knowing, too, with the movies that he made, there were lots of things that he had to compromise on that the studios kind of forced on him. But he was also very open to suggestions from other people, too. I mean, like, that's one thing I appreciate about him as a movie director is he went into that very humble knowing I don't know what I'm doing I just want to try this and see if I can do a better job at adapting my own work because I'm kind of protective of it the quote that I have written down is the cast treated my ineptitudes kindly and the crew were no less forgiving I don't know the difference between a 10 millimeter lens and a 35 millimeter lens <laughs> and if you showed me a plate of spaghetti <laughs> and said that was a lens I'd have believed you Allegedly, he went to the library the day before production started on Hellraiser to go rent a book about filmmaking, and the one book was checked out. He has been very open about, like, I had no idea what I was doing. But he is also, from all accounts, he was very open to suggestion. He was very open to collaboration. So to answer your question, Derek, I don't get the impression necessarily that he is that kind of Kubrickian professional perfectionist. Everything has to be exactly the way I want it. He's protective of his stories, but from all accounts, he was very collaborative at the end of the day. He came into Hellraiser with the general idea of this is what I want things to look like. And he worked with the makeup team and he worked with the costumer team to come up with the Cenobites. It's not like he went and said, this is hard and firm, like what I want them to look at or look like. So I appreciate that about him, that he was definitely willing to like trust the people around him and collaborate. It, it seems like the new Hellraiser 2 kind of had his blessing and like that he was on board for like what Hulu did with it. Well, after years of being just stonewalled by the Weinsteins, I'm sure 
working with anybody yeah. else was probably, you know, a breeze. Well, and I mean, that's the same with Carpenter, because that's what happened with a lot of the later Halloweens yeah. before the uh, 2019 reboot was that uh, they all got stonewalled by the Weinsteins. So, yeah, Hellraiser is based on... Again, The Hellbound Heart, which was his novella that was included in the third volume of the anthology series Night Visions. So not the Books of Blood. Correct. Oh, yeah. This was a publisher anthology. That was all different wow. short stories. Didn't know that. Yep. Weirdly enough, Richard Branson's version, like as in Virgin Records, Virgin Airlines, they were dipping their toes into film production and initially committed on a 50-50 split with New World Pictures to finance the movie. And they backed out at the last minute. So, you know, luckily New World agreed to foot the bill. But like just that instance right there, yeah. whole thing could have been off. If that hadn't have come through, this whole thing probably never would have seen the light of day. They shot the film over 10-week schedule in 86. Again, with Barker not being entirely experienced, the producers brought in Tony Randall as a production supervisor to kind of help guide and manage Barker. Yeah. Normally when that happens, that production supervisor is kind of a fucking pain in the ass they are usually always on the side of the studio they are always trying to do things quicker cheaper easier cut corners as much as possible and just stifle things creatively luckily tony randall was all on board with this movie all on board with barker's vision and uh he was very helpful and supportive so much so that barker was like yo i want you to direct too you know so they seemingly had a great relationship despite how things kind of initially started so uh, you know that's kind of how this got started and in a nutshell. As far as the story itself goes, though, there's a lot going on here. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So <laughs> as far as starting to peel back some of the layers, this is an incredibly interesting movie to consider at the time in the 80s from the standpoint of where queer culture was, the height of the AIDS epidemic, Great Britain certainly being like in the middle of Thatcher times. There's just like a lot going on in terms of this movie dealing with repression and this movie dealing with unfulfilled desire and this movie specifically dealing with body and gender power dynamics. There's just a lot to kind of dig into, some of which I don't feel like we are entirely qualified to discuss <laughs> necessarily. But the one thing I would kind of posit to you guys that we can discuss is I think this movie has a lot to do with looking at how destructive masculinity like can be that classic toxic masculinity and how Frank is this just wrecking ball force who destroys everybody and everything that he kind of comes across in his own personal quest for fulfillment. Not only does he ruin himself, he ruins his brother's family. He ruins the marriage that he had. He even sets Julia on this complete path into villainhood. Just everything about who he is fundamentally and the values that he embraces is what puts him on this road to villainy. And at the end of the day, he's the real villain of this movie. It's not the Cenobites. You know, they are just kind of this Greek chorus that's there. It's interesting where it goes in number two, especially because Julia definitely is the villain. She is full mad queen bitch, evil stepmother mode. It's always more interesting to me when the people in the story are the real villains and not the monster, not the other, not this thing that seems scary. Cullen, that's one of the things I appreciate most about 
Harrow County is just so much of the time, the person you're actually needing to be worried about that's actually dangerous is the people next door, not, you know, the spoopy critters. Well, yeah, the, I mean, the Cenobites are really, they're set dressing in a lot of ways. It's its interesting where these yeah. movies went. And I always think it's strange that in a lot of ways we've taken Pinhead and he's almost become another slasher, right? Yeah. yeah. Which is, this movie's not a slasher picture at all. No. I mean, there's lots of slashing, but it's not a, it's not a slasher movie. But yeah, Frank is the bad guy. He's the one that destroys everything. His obsession with pushing boundaries, to my mind, that's what led him down the path of destroying his brother's marriage just to see if he could. He just wanted yeah. to see if he could. And he uses Julia. The more I think about it, it's, it's really interesting. All right, so the puzzle box is such a, you know, it's the iconic device, the artifact that yeah. it's the puzzle they're trying to solve. And it's a tool that you use to open doorways. But Frank uses Julia as a tool the entire movie. Frank is yep. using Julia. Interestingly enough, to Julia, Frank represents obsession because she's obsessed with him, but he's also a puzzle she's trying to figure out. And it's yeah. what kills her. It's what destroys her is trying to figure out the puzzle of Frank. So there, there's a lot there. Like you said, there's so much going on and there's so many different sort of levels to it that go so far beyond, you know, sadomasochistic hell priest. Yeah, yeah, totally. Two of the things that you guys brought up, because the thing that kind of blew me away, and like this is one of those movies that like, what else can we say that hasn't been said before about it, right? So I'll start off with what really stood out to me as like a complete newbie going into this first time was the fact that like both of you have said Frank is the true villain. Not only that, but the Cenobites actually aren't in the movie that much. No, they're and, not. And that's what's kind of funny to me with how marketed now the whole franchise is around really the Hell Priest himself, Doug Bradley's Pinhead. And what's funny is to that point, he's really not in the sequels that much either yeah especially yeah. the later ones you know so I, I find that fascinating i love how contained this movie is yeah it really only takes place in the house and really a large chunk of that is in that attic that he's resurrected in yeah that's really cool i did not i thought this movie was going to go in more insane direction i mean i hate to say that but bigger bombastic insane directions it goes in insane directions but yeah. coming from that stage background that he has like a playwright it feels kind of like a play because totally. it, there's only a few scene changes and everything. The other thing I want to bring up is what Colin you brought up. Great point to peek behind the curtain. I watched the first three Hellraiser movies and the new one. This might be hot take. I like the new one more than even the second Hellraiser movie, at least knee jerk. I mean, my opinion of this a year later may change, but I really enjoyed the newest Hellraiser. And part of that is because in the first movie and in the new one, the Hellpriest and the Cenobites are so unknowable. And I think, too, kind of gives away a little too much of the mystery of the Cenobites being these otherworldly, like demonic entities. And then three just goes off the rails of three is stupid and it was fun. I enjoyed watching three. <laughs> But like three turns Pinhead into like a super villain slasher. Like first I'm going to take over this nightclub and slaughter everybody into it. And then the world. Dude, yeah. DJ Cenobite, bartender Cenobite. Yeah. I love dumb shit in horror movies all the time. I mean, we cover blood rage every fucking year, Aaron. But that was almost such a betrayal of what the character is like in the first movie. And even in the second movie, spoilers for the second Hellraiser movie, they all get taken out by like. Yeah. And it's kind of just all the menace that they once were is like now gone. And I love what they do with Julia in the second movie a lot. I wish she w turned out to be like the main bad guy, really, at the end of the day and not. 
But I don't know. I just I felt like this first movie. You're right. It's not a slasher movie at all. But so many people approach the Hell Priest Pinhead as a slasher. And I mean, even for as much as I like the new one, I did have issues with the new one, too. And there are moments in the new one where it's almost kind of like the Cenobites are more slashery than, you know, just otherworldly entities like they're portrayed in this one. Yeah. Yeah. The producers really didn't get that character either. They didn't get any of the Cenobites at the end of the day. You know, it's really just by circumstance that Bradley, specifically the Hell Priest, Pinhead, lead Cenobite as he's credited in this movie, that he kind of became the center of those characters because Chatterer and Butterball were both supposed to have dialogue and literally because the makeup was so overwhelming, they couldn't deliver dialogue. Right. So their lines were then just divvied up and given to female Cenobite in air quotes who never actually gets named in the first or second movie. And pinhead that kind of pushed them more toward the center a little bit again like the producers just didn't get this character you know they wanted either super jokey punny freddy oh no that well that's what he becomes (laughs) in three you know from three on yeah yeah. puns and shit or they wanted the silent brooding jason michael myers archetype right like this was the height of slasher movies and that's what the producers were expecting right and barker's pitch was like no no no. i want christopher lee dracula yeah that very erudite well-spoken regal kind of character who then can just turn into like a vicious beast all of a sudden i mean we joked earlier about like him encountering dr doom but he is like dr doom of horror icons in some ways yeah Yeah. and the way he delivers lines barker also kind of specifically mentions hannibal lecter And just that entire incredible sophistication and intelligence, but in a very twisted, I'm fundamentally broke and I see the world differently kind of way. Like that's how he wanted that character to kind of come across. You know, he also kind of described to Bradley, like imagine he's the administrator of a hospital, but the hospital is all operating rooms, no wards. And he has to like do the knife work and also like write the schedules. (laughs) He's like, that's kind of what this character should be. I mean, he is the surgeon of hell basically. Yeah. So it's such an interesting character compared to, like we said, what else was out there at the time and how because that's not what audiences were used to at the time people either loved it and it was a totally different take or they were like this isn't what i'm used to yeah and we we already have freddy we already had chucky and they're like the jokey slashers you have jason and and the shape michael myers who are the stoic slashers and that was kind of like the thing that I, i forgot about when we did uh the original nightmare on elm street on an earlier episode with damien even in that freddy fucks around a little bit but he's also doesn't really talk that much of that right. first nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. He's a lot more serious. They kind of took that and ran in a completely different direction and just turned it into like pun kills with him, which is fine. It's fun in its own way. But like we didn't need to do that with Pinhead, especially with like what Pinhead represents and like where he comes from and everything. It, that's what kind of pissed me off a little bit about watching the third movie. As dumb and fun as it was, it really just kind of ruined the character to me. Yeah. And from that point on, it literally is just yeah. he's going to show up at the very end, say a couple lines lines and get zapped disappear yeah and i thought that jamie clayton oh she's great was amazing yeah. that was like again the pinhead i'm looking for yeah and much closer to barker's whole original description of that character in the novella yeah i dug the look the 
tonality of that character. Like I, I liked everything about that interpretation in the remake. But that's kind of what's interesting too is all the Cenobites are made up to be these completely abject, gross, monstrous kinds of things. And really in the first movie, they're just kind of there to like do their job. You know, they're not necessarily being villainous. They're just being true to their nature more than anything. Right. And Frank is the one that, again, it's interesting that the movie starts where we see him get taken. And your initial assumption is, oh, what happened to that guy? You know, what did he do? What what was wrong with him? He just seemed like this average handsome dude, whatever. And the fact that that's kind of where your brain initially starts with him is interesting because then little by little, you start to see these clues throughout the course of the story you know when they get to the house they find his weird flop bed drugs taboo icons and these sexually explicit photos of him and these other women and doing some light SM kind of play yeah and you kind of start to get an idea of what this guy's kind of actually like well and talking about clues i don't know if you guys caught this i'm sure you did but like it's a quick line frank utters actually in a flashback with julia when julia's cheating on her husband with him they just had sex and he's like in a weird mood and he just mutters it's still not enough yeah and like that is his whole character right there it's after they just got done probably having a fuck marathon with his brother's soon-to-be wife and like wife yeah still not enough need more power (laughs) need more sensuality well and and so like that's what drives him to find the puzzle box yeah and like seek out the cenobites because like he wants to experience the most extreme pain and pleasure and yeah i think that's his character to a t right there is that line that one line in that flashback and through julia's flashbacks too i mean we see that he was actually quite deviant and his true nature continues to unfold until the very end and you discover like what a complete lech this guy actually is he is a deviant sure but the interesting thing is at the end of the day, he was a coward. He backed out. He could have become one of the Cenobites. Every one of those yeah. Cenobites went searching for the furthest reaches of human experience, and they kept going. But Frank, yeah. what a punk. Yeah. What a punk, Frank. He had to back out yeah. and try to escape from hell. It was too much for him in the end. Yeah, totally. So as much of a, he's a big talker, that Frank. But at the, end of, at the end of the day, he had to back right out. The whole movie is him trying to stay out. Yeah. yeah. Stay out of that whole deal. Stay out, but then all also regain his own power. Right. The Cenobites, yeah. when they took him, they stripped him of any power that he had in this world. Yeah. <laughs> Literally and figuratively, yeah. Yeah. And what's <laughs> interesting to me is at the beginning, and it's interesting watching this for the people that haven't seen it, because you immediately are like, whoa, that guy got taken, right? And you, it doesn't really ever cross your mind initially that <laughs> maybe that guy deserved it, right? Maybe that guy like asked for that. You know, so why do we assume that he's better than what he is? Why do we assume that the Cenobites are worse than what they are, right? It's the whole reason exactly why Frank wants his skin and his body back. He wants his normalcy back. He wants his ability to blend back into like the handsome white dude status quo where nobody will automatically suspect he could be a dangerous deviant. He wants to be back to his comfortable level of power that he's used to because like you said, he wussed out on becoming a full Cenobite. He couldn't handle that, you know, so he's got to get back to what he does know. 
coming back the way he did, literally like from ooze snot out of the floorboards and having to like beg and conjole and manipulate Julia into getting him back his body, you know, and his power and his privilege is super interesting. Yeah. So like, let's start with that scene right there, because this will be a good time to interject horror newbies, right? <laughs> um, and body horror and gore, especially like exploration of the what the body, how it can be turned into a uh, ground beef would like get you. <laughs> Uh, you may want to stay away from Hellraiser because boy, does this movie explore the anatomy yeah. in so many ways. To that point of his rebirth, that rebirth scene. It's so good. I didn't think anything in terms of effects could top the werewolf transformation in American Werewolf in London, which is an amazing scene. But this scene was like on a whole different level to me. First off, I love that Larry, like not just cuts himself, is like gushing blood all over the Shreds place. Shreds his hand, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're like, yeah, we need to go to the hospital. You need stitches. But they're kind of treating it like matter of a fact when like dude has like, cut off flesh like off of his uh, hand. Mm-hmm. But that whole scene of the blood dripping down, getting absorbed into the floorboard and almost like that, like beating heart under the floorboard, turning into the ooze. And then slowly, like the two limbs shoot up and then like all the goop slowly reforms. Some of the scariest shit in this movie to me are those scenes before he can even really stand when like you kind of see him in the background or when he's like just crawling on the floor really fast as like that corpse. Mm -hmm. That imagery was fucking haunting when I saw it on the screen like that is some pretty creepy jump scare moments when he's just the fucking dripping corpse on the ground. What's wild, too, is the whole rebirth sequence was something that they added in reshoots entirely. What? Really? Because it was originally just the blood drips to the floor, the floor absorbs the blood, and then when she goes back up there, he's there. there. It was one of those things where at the last minute they were like, we need to have something a little bit more there, and they squeezed out a little bit of extra money and time to reshoot that whole sequence. Oh boy, did they go for it. As memorable as the Hell Priest and the Cenobites are, to me, that is the most memorable scene from this movie. Yeah, it's wild. They used gallons of methyl cellulose, which is like a food thickener, but it's goop slime stuff that they use in all kinds of horror makeup. They had several puppet rigs for that to do the ligaments and framework and the skeleton. So it was all practical. Yes. Oh, yeah. All this was practical. There was no way to do this otherwise at the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. They did the same effect that they utilized in Raiders of the Lost Ark with the melting Nazi faces, where kind of like how they do like reverse forensic stuff where they take a skull and they literally just build the layers of muscle and tissue on top to make the face. They do that same thing, but they do it with different waxes that melt at different rates. So then they just blast it with heat, watch the thing melt in all these different layers. And then do it backwards. Roll the film backwards. (laughs) It looks like it's all just coming back onto place, right? It's it's a great basic dumb effect, but it takes so so much (laughs) skill and knowledge to craft a human body from scratch. It takes a lot of skill to be able to do that. They also used a lot of condoms and KY jelly. Because obviously the condoms are latex and uh, the KY jelly is just kind of a way to make things look 
wet and stay wet on set. I mean, that's pretty apropos for this movie. Yeah. (laughs) And apparently they hated drawing straws to go to the local pharmacy and buy all of their stock. You know, somebody had to go and be like, I need all of your condoms and KY jelly, please. (laughs) Don't ask questions. Just let me pay for it. Yeah, really? Yeah, that, that whole sequence is nuts. It's incredible to look at. The score is huge and bombastic in that moment because you really are watching this strange aberrant miracle happening before your eyes you know and just everybody watching it with you is just jaw on the floor the entire time at like what are we looking at what is happening you know so that's the other thing christopher young's score is so much more classical and like not what i was expecting for this movie yeah and somehow it fucking works it's one of my favorite movie scores i love it same it's amazing yeah it's amazing that's one that i listen to year round yeah I saw that he composed two as well. And then I saw that they reused a lot of his score for the new one as well, which I appreciated. But yeah, I just I didn't think that the Hellraiser franchise had such a uh, classy bombastic film score to it for a movie that's like about turning people into ground beef and like sex and all that. Yeah, the the score is incredible. This is absolutely one of my favorites. And I sent you the YouTube video that's the original band that was supposed to do the score Coil. Coil, yeah. Barker was friends with. That's a weird band. Yeah. That's a whole different can of worms with them. Yeah. It kind of became clear that they didn't really have any experience writing music for movies. You know, they didn't know anything about like timing cues to the film. Plus, the studio didn't want to pay out royalties, so they were just like, oh, none. Tony Randall was already familiar with Christopher Young and had worked with him before, so that's where they brought him on. He had done Nightmare on Elm Street 2 recently and Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars, so it was just kind of a perfect, like, eh, get this guy in, and yeah, that score's amazing. Colin, I remember you mentioned that you throw on John Carpenter when you're writing a lot. Do you do the same thing with the, with the Hellraiser score? Oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of there's a few Christopher Young scores that I uh, that I'll play, but yeah, Hellraiser is absolutely in in rotation. Yeah, I really love his main theme from Tales from the Hood. It's mm-hmm. like nothing else on that entire soundtrack, but it's so fucking good. So yeah, as far as like the rest of the production stuff, just to get that out of the way, they shot at a real house. The attic was really the only thing that was a set just for the purposes of doing the effects. None of the Cenobites could see, thanks to their makeup. <laughs> 
<laughs> I bet. Bradley had in black contacts and the other guys, you know, had so much makeup on they literally couldn't see while they were acting. So they were constantly stumbling around and dropping the puzzle box. <laughs> you know, obviously the designs were all influenced by punk fashion, the SM leather clubs that Barker visited in Amsterdam and New York City. There's a lot of Catholic iconography in the Cenobite design as well tribal ritual scarring i mean there's all kinds of interesting shit going on with their look well that kind of goes hand in hand with the whole line of demons to some angels to others yeah bob keen and jeffrey portis were the two main guys who did the makeup for image animation and jane wild goose is the one who did the costumes which she seems like she's a fucking hoot i've seen her in some interviews in Mm -hmm. prep for this but yeah barker described to her he wanted them to resemble quote magnificent super butchers with a sense of repulsive glamour and that's kind of exactly what they end up being in a very interesting and unique way well and each of them almost feels like they're a different characterization of sadomasochism in a way or a different deadly sin different ways too, or a different deadly sin yeah i know it was kind of more of a happy accent but i like that two of them remain silent because the chatterer is also just as iconic to me as pinhead's design and it adds the cr- their creepiness because like all you hear is the our teeth yeah. clacking. Yeah. My brother's dog has been over here this weekend and that dog and my parents dog jump around and play fighting. It's just been that the entire time <laughs> we were watching the movie the other night and just hearing Chatterer and then hearing the two dogs just off in the back room was just the weirdest sound. I, I will say too, I hope if any of our listeners are into BDSM, I would love to hear like that standpoint people who are into that community what they think about this movie and what this movie portrays and all that because that's one of those aspects of this film that i i don't think we can really have a great discussion around because we're not really uh... speak for yourself yeah colin Derek and i are <laughs> very uh straight white dudes i know i am that into any kind of BDSM, but there are lots of people who are qualified to talk about that. I would definitely recommend checking out the Horror Queers podcast has a good episode on this movie. They actually have episodes on the entire franchise if you really want to dig in. Oh, wow. They did. They they went for it. huh? Yeah. And I'm very certain that the Attack of the Queer Wolf podcast covered this at one point in time as well. So definitely check out those episodes because that is a whole different perspective that you're not necessarily going to be able to get from us in a qualified way yeah and again we would love to hear from members of that community if, if you're listening to us reach out yeah let's let's talk because this is another aspect of it that i've always been very interested in there's so much about this movie i want to like explore that i know we, we won't even have time even yeah. with three or four hours like we wouldn't have enough time to so there were three different versions of the puzzle box that were made simon sace is the guy who designed the puzzle box all the lighting animation right every time the box is activated all the little lightning bits apparently barker and tony randall just holed up in barker's place and got wasted and literally sat and just hand drew Hmm. all the animation for the lightning on the film directly do you guys know when was it properly called the lament configuration in the short story it's called the lamashard configuration or something yeah it's the Lamarchand configuration. The Lamarchand was the guy who designed it. Yeah. What I did like about the new movie, speaking of, is how each configuration, each configuration yeah. of the box, that was cool, yeah. has its own name and has its own aspect. I like that a lot. And that was to me cool. the most interesting new idea of the movie. Of it was that. Yeah. Well, and they still incorporated 
Leviathan in it yeah. as well. Yeah, as the final configuration. Is Leviathan in the Clyde Barker short stories at all or any of his books? Or was that fully film universe? I want to say that's fully film universe because honestly, I just re-listened to Hellbound Heart. Granted, I was doing fixer-upper stuff on our house that we were trying to sell, uh, so I may not have been paying the most attention, but I don't remember Leviathan being in that. It's not. It's not in the Hellbound Heart. I don't know if it's in any of the other, like the Scarlet Gospels or whatever. Okay. Yeah, I couldn't find anything on it beyond the second movie and all the movies from there. And then, so I do find that interesting that the new movie, like, because what we've been finding out with, like, a lot of these legacy sequels is it just, like, wipes the slate clean and is only a direct sequel equal to like the first movie yeah whereas this one is pretty much a reboot but it still incorporates elements from movie two yeah i was surprised that leviathan was a heavy part of the story of the new one right i really did like what they did with the puzzle box and the new one because watching through the entire franchise it's kind of hilarious. Jesus, you watched all of them? <laughs> I did it. I did it. So shout out to our buddy Wes McKellar that we went to college with. If he's listening a couple years back, he was like, bro, I challenge you. You're not going to be able to do it. And I was like, bullshit. I will. I'm a little worried because I, I haven't watched them yet, but I just got all the Blu-rays of all the movies. I think I've only seen the first four and the remake. Interesting. Okay. So most people say just stick with the first but, four. But here they are. I got a, I got a whole bunch of unwrapped. Oh, uh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I got a whole bunch of unwrapped Hellraiser Blu-rays. And even then, some people say stick with the first two, but three and four are at least tolerable. <laughs> yeah, it's wild kind of where it goes. But I will say I failed the challenge the first time our buddy West <laughs> told me I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I didn't make it. I made it like seven and just kind of tapped out. I'm your Huckleberry, West. Yeah, I'm your Huckleberry. <laughs> I'm going for it. Yeah, I did it this time. And so I, I definitely completed the entire thing for this show. You completed the puzzle box. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I made it through all the configurations. And your suffering was legendary, even in hell. <laughs> yeah. By the time I got to nine, it really was because nine was bad. I have no no delusions that I'm going to enjoy this experience, but uh, I'm gonna yeah. give it a shot. Well, there there were some yeah. that I was kind of surprised by, which I'll kind of briefly mention in a little bit. I have heard five is five has its fans. Yeah, people think is underrated. As far as like the puzzle <laughs> box goes, back to that watching through all the sequels. What cracked me up was everybody has down the two or three movements that they do in every single movie. It's always turn it over in your hands and look at it, touch this side, and then rub your finger around the circle, and then it just magically pops open. There's no other movements to the box that you have to do to solve it, especially by the later sequels. The box doesn't even open. It just kind of sits there, and you see somebody rub the box, and then blue lights appear, you know? <laughs> so I really did love the aspect from the remake that each configuration has its own purpose and its own goal behind it, essentially. And that kind of like in this movie, you're having to like sacrifice people to move the configuration along. So that that whole aspect I found to be very, very intriguing. And to that point, the first movie, this one we're talking about and the new one are really the only two that really, at least out of the ones I watched. Uh, were really the only ones that felt like this is a puzzle box. This is something that the characters are struggling to figure out because Kirsty, while she is a solid final girl, 
girl. They do a good job of her really kind of just struggling with this puzzle box and under pressure and everything else. And that's kind of where her strength comes out. She's crafty because like she cuts the deal with the Cenobites after accidentally opening it, thinking on her feet, and then is able to escape them and basically outwit them, which it seems like this is something that most people don't outwit them. And how many times throughout history have they done this to other people? And the, the newest one, it's all about figuring out each configuration. So I like that the puzzle box is really featured heavily in both these adaptations because it even felt like a little bit in the second one that the puzzle box wasn't as iconic. And then the third one, puzzle box is just a fucking set piece at that point. Right. Well, I told you, you should have pushed through to four where we not only have the origins of the puzzle box, but then we have a puzzle box skyscraper right. and we have a puzzle yeah. box space station. Yeah. And that's what that goes to that fan theory of Event uh, Horizon that he created the puzzle box spaceship yeah. <laughs> that took them to hell. So yeah. another kind of goofy connection that the remake has with this original movie. Where do you think this movie is set? What country do you think this story takes place in? In the movie? In the movie. I think it's weird, but it is it's London, right? It's gotta be. Nope. That's where that's where Julia <laughs> moved is, to. I know. She moved back home. Julia's from London. They say Julia, you move back, back home. back at your old stomping grounds. Yes. So they shot this movie in the UK, it is explicitly London. They go into the London underground with the white tiles. Mm-hmm. That house is British as fuck. Yeah. Everything about the setting is British. Half the characters still have British accents. And the, and the original story is in England, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. For whatever reason... The producers were like, well, we need to set it in the U.S. That's going to sell better. That's going to make more sense. Where does sense. it say that, though, in the movie? Where does where does it? That's the problem. It kind of doesn't. But what they ended up doing was they went back and they dubbed half the characters. Oh, well. That's what I was about to ask you, because there's so many characters that like I'm yeah. expecting to be British. And then they have American accents. And I'm like, what the fuck? So Sean Chapman that plays Frank and Oliver Smith that plays skinless Frank. Both of them are dubbed. One of the mattress mover guys, his lines are all dubbed. Oh, yeah, that that one was noticeable to me. Yeah. Is yeah. it the main guy that shows back up at uh, the end of Hellraiser 2? Uh, yes, because he's one of Barker's buddies from the theater stuff. Yeah. And weirdly enough, Bradley was like, uh, should I take the role of Pinhead or should I take the role of one of the mattress mover guys? And that way, casting agents will see my face and casting directors and executives will see my face. And that's what his actor brain is telling him. Good thing he didn't take that and took uh, the movie that would give him a like 16 year career playing that character. (laughs) (laughs) Unless he hated the makeup. Yeah, the makeup's always a pain in the ass. But, you know, he was always like, yeah, it was tough, but we did it. And the crazy thing is he got so used to the makeup and he got so good at helping them put on the makeup. Like he just got used to knowing like what to do. He actually gets a makeup assistant credit in some of the sequels (laughs) because he just he's that good at doing the makeup himself at that point and helping out but yeah to think that like he almost skipped out on that role because he was like mattress mover guy they'll see me there they won't recognize me under all this makeup but yeah barker was getting a lot of his buddies in this movie Mm -hmm. another instance weirdly enough peter atkins the guy who wrote two three four he's the bartender in three that turns into the cenobite (laughs) yeah the one who gives it gives him roses yeah yeah Yeah. there's weird cameos throughout all these of other friends of Barker's. But yeah, the movie is f- obviously in the UK and the producers are like, no, we need to set it in a 
America. And so there's just weird, dumb things like half the characters are dubbed, but then some aren't. One of the guys that Julia brings home is clearly not dubbed. There's the moment where Kirsty passes out on the street and all those people gather around. That was filmed later. And they were like, well, just put a New York Yankees hat on that guy. That'll make people realize it's America. <laughs> but there's certain things that like still don't make sense. Like mm. Kirsty makes the joke about, oh, I thought all you Brits were uptight and like cold. Right. You know, she doesn't say Brits. She says, I thought all of you were supposed to be uptight and cold. That makes no sense out of context, right? <laughs> so it's just weird that like that was one of the nitpicky things that the producers were like, no, we insist on this and kind of how they half-assed did it. Cause for my entire life, I have always assumed, Oh, this movie set in, England. Wow. And then reading that detail and hearing people involved in the production say that detail, I was like, oh, okay. That makes about as much sense as the college from Pieces being in Boston and them being like, cool, what does an American dorm room look like? I don't know. Put up a Clint Eastwood poster and put Coke cans on the wall. Just yeah. that was a weird detail. And this new movie is all in Serbia, which I was definitely not expecting necessarily. Speaking of weird decisions from the producers, Barker originally intended the film to be titled The Hellbound Heart, and the producers felt that it sounded too much like a romance movie. The Hellbound Heart? Yeah. Hellbound? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> and Barker decided to be a smartass and suggest, well, how about sadomasochists from beyond the grave? Hmm. And they were like, cool, how about Hellraiser? <laughs> Apparently, an older female exec suggested what a woman will do for a good fuck. <laughs> that one's pretty good, too. That's also a rom-com. <laughs> this movie received an X rating, not surprisingly. Shocker. Yeah, yeah. No, right. Like most horror movies at this time, they had to make a lot of cuts. So the MPAA took issue with some of the explicitness of the sex scenes, but not in ways that you would expect. So it was just, again, dumb shit like three thrusts of the buttocks is too many. Only two. Okay, sure. Like, <laughs> whatever. So you want to talk about, like, something that I thought I remembered, like a false memory from my childhood? I thought the scene, and sp this is spoiling the very end of the movie, I thought the scene where Frank is torn to pieces was on screen longer, but it's really, you only see it for, like, a split second as she, like, slams the door shut. Then I was reading that one of the scenes they had to censor to, like, go from an X to an R rating was that scene. They cut it short. Yeah. The original scene was him being torn to pieces, and then, like, his brain splashing out from his head after being exploded and it was a lot longer and for some reason in my head I remember seeing that when I was younger and being like oh so that's what Hellraiser is about but it's not the case that is the scene which yeah. I think the two most iconic shots of this movie both are Frank it's Frank's rebirth and then Frank's redeath <laughs> redeath <laughs> yeah like that whole like being stretched by the hooks and then exploding also very memorable yeah. as well as the line that he says so yeah the movie premiered September 8th it grossed 15.8 million on a one million dollar budget which firmly firmly made it a hit a lot of critics at the time loved the atmosphere loved the adult themes loved the intensity especially again when campy slasher movies were kind of the trend except for our boy roger ebert who oh, yeah. has a bug up his ass about horror and i have this as a quote he decried this movie as a bankruptcy of imagination which what how? are you yeah. talking about like it, even if you don't like this movie it is imaginative as fuck yeah. in very sadistic ways but it is extremely imaginative this is one of the more unique and idiosyncratic horror movies yeah. of this era for sure 
you cannot say bankruptcy of imagination. Yeah. And Eber gave it like half a star too. like way to be a petty motherfucker. Just whatever. It's the same kind of thing where like critics at the time mostly hated it because it was horror. And now, of course, like it's a huge thing and people dress up as Cenobites and people have tattoos of Cenobites and people collect action figures and puzzle box replicas. And there are numerous releases of this movie on different formats and collectible vinyl and just anything everything you could think of like this movie's cultural impact is massive when you literally have the simpsons venture brothers and all kinds of other things like making fun of rick and morty hellraiser rick and morty yeah like you know you've done it right you know that you've made some kind of impact absolutely well not only like getting spoofed on but influencing because the manga author of berserk has said that among the influences of berserk this movie is a direct influence i haven't read anywhere that creators of silent hill necessarily quoted this they more quote jacob slatter as far as theatrical influences on silent hill but you can't tell me there isn't influence of this movie in silent hill yeah there was rusty chains and shit hanging from the ceiling and all those games yeah especially like when the cenobites show up the monster design of the more like monstrous cenobite that chases her the engineer yeah the engineer yeah all the chains hanging like when they appear and like how the root atmosphere completely changes you you can't tell me that pyramid head exactly is that's a cenobite is not like an homage horror video games especially have been riffing off hellraiser for years and years now there's a great tabletop role-playing game too that i don't know if you guys are tabletop role-playing gamers i dabble yeah there's a a yeah. great role-playing game called Cult. Cult with a K. That is essentially, I've always called it the Clyde Barker Hellraiser role-playing game. It obviously doesn't reference Cenobites, but it the artwork is absolutely referential yeah. of Clyde Barker work, specifically Hellraiser. I remember when they first launched the game, I went to Gen Con that year, and they had limit configurations everywhere. They had the puzzle boxes all over their display table. <laughs> so it, it, super, super uh, Barker-esque. Well, and for what I remember of the little bit of knowledge I have of that game, and again, even with Silent Hill, they both take that idea that is in Clyde Barker of religious iconography and naming conventions and oh, yeah. make it into like these fucked up flesh monsters, basically. Yeah. Because like, I mean, hell, and um, Silent Hill 3 specifically, the final boss of that game is something called God, but it is may as well be just a giant Cenobite, this skeletal, emaciated, like half born like flesh monster Mm -hmm. with a woman's face so yeah it uh, that whole idea of and Colin actually shows up in your work too like that idea of transcendence and it being like so anatomically like fucked is so interesting it's such a horror trope that I dig and it seems like it all kind of came from Clyde Barker's work in Hellraiser yeah same thing with like some Cronenberg stuff just that entire idea of like Cronenberg I have transcended this frail corporeal form like I am more than human at this point like I know pain beyond all human understanding to the point that it gives me power like yeah I love all that (laughs) and then it's like this flesh baby (laughs) with eight arms yeah yeah any of that kind of shit is always super fun Yeah. yeah so let's talk about the cast real quick so julia played by claire higgins she is fantastic in this movie i 
absolutely love the character of Julia. I love her even more in the second movie where, like I mentioned, she goes full villain. I was about to say the second one. Yeah. Even though I don't like the second one as much as this or the new one, she makes the second one. Oh, yeah. Good. She is amazing in the second one. And it's so disappointing that they didn't roll with her as the villain going forward because the original ending was her coming back in full Queen of Hell mode and they opted for like a way dumber route. So it's it's interesting what could have been, but Claire Higgins also, for her part, she didn't want to come back either. So like, that is what it is. Yeah, Yeah, but it's just weird how they write her often too, because it's very random and not really explained well as to like how she dies, basically. But yeah, she was in a lot of Brit TV TV and movies. I keep bringing up this weird credit every time I come across one because it seems like more and more I keep finding people that were in it. But Young Indiana Jones Chronicles she <laughs> plays Edith Wharton in an episode. She was also in House of Mirth, The Libertine, The Golden Compass, A Fantastic Fear of Everything, Ready Player One, which we mentioned earlier. She was just recently in Sandman. She is kind of the like crazy hobo lady that occasionally shows up and speaks some wisdom or portents to the main character. Other weird detail I noticed. So are either of you familiar with the 1986 British made for TV movie, the worst witch where Tim Curry sings an awesome song about Halloween. Oh yeah. I know that. I didn't know that's what it was called. I remember I've watched it. (laughs) Anything can happen when it's Halloween, right? That on Halloween, that's the song. Halloween, your dog could turn into a cat. There may be a toad in your bass guitar, or your sister could turn into a bat. Christmas time brings the snow, summertime brings the sun. But on Halloween, your blood begins to run. Something spooky is going down. I know the song, yeah, and I, I know I've seen the show. I didn't know it was called The Worst Witch. I thought it was Halloween Town or something. Yeah, yeah I know the song. Yeah, that song went viral a couple of years back because it is delightful. It is just Tim Curry as a weird vampire with lots of 80s video effects, and it's just him singing a song about Halloween that's rad as fuck. I need to look that up. I have no knowledge of this. But Claire Higgins is in the current running of that show there have been a couple of different iterations of it over the years but it's it's literally the harry potter thing it's just a little girl who gets chosen to go to witch school and she's kind of a little screw up girl who can't be a good witch but the current season the main character is bella ramsey who was liana mormont in game of thrones but now she's also about to be ellie in the last of us TV show for HBO. That's right. So like, that's the only like weird reason I bring that up. And like I mentioned, Higgins apparently hates horror movies. So she was like, yeah, no, I didn't want to be in any more of these movies. It is what it is. Well, she puts in a hell of a performance. Oh yeah, totally. Both of them. Famously, she left the premiere of Hellraiser after only 10 minutes. Cause she was just like, nope, (laughs) I'm out done by So yeah, she's uh she's great. I love her performance. She's this. a horror newbie like I am. Yeah, there you go. I love the first seduction scene where she brings the guy back. I love her outfit. <laughs> she is in full 
power suit mode right there with the shoulder pads and the star earrings and the sunglasses and I fucking love then she takes the sunglasses off and her eye makeup matches that shirt <laughs> like the entire time I was just like yes this is it right here <laughs> well and on, on top of that her performance and transformation is very believable because yeah. the first seduction is very awkward she's like very hesitant and then like once she commits she commits and then fucking Frank what's unsettling is you don't really see too much what he actually does to the bodies right. but you but hear, you hear that, that slurping milkshake noise yeah, yeah like that slurping <laughs> noise it's like that got under my skin so bad but then as they're doing the montage she really just gets into like this black widow-esque killer yeah. role that she's in it gets easier each time i love the moment during the first seduction where they're back at the house and the guy starts making out with her kind of hard in the hallway and she's clearly still a little bit uncomfortable with that and immediately he starts getting hostile yeah. and is just like, what? Yeah. what? You going to call it off? You going to call it off? What the fuck? You drug me all the way out here. And then you see her turn. And it's that moment of, fuck you. I'm not putting up with this. You're going to the grinder. Like immediately just... You can see her turn as soon as he starts getting hostile. She goes from being uncomfortable to like, nope, <laughs> you're going, bud. And just that moment yeah. is so fucking good how she turns on a dime right there and then brings him up and conks him. Yeah, I like that she has to get her hands dirty. Like, it's not just yeah. Frank as a corpse jumping these guys. She has to in initiate like and make them vulnerable for Frank to slurp them. And after that first murder, her staring at herself in the mirror covered in blood is great just that intensity and her having that same rush that she knows frank probably has all the time of this is what it feels like this is what it feels like to kill somebody you know like i, I kind of <laughs> like this this feels good oh and oh boy does she she likes it in the second one yeah. <laughs> like yeah. they really take that idea and run yeah the scene with the mattress in the second movie is one of my all-time favorite holy wow shit, yeah what did i just see kind of scenes it's yeah. great yeah yeah so kirsty is played by ashley lawrence this was her film debut Great final girl performance, by the way. Yes. Yeah, she is very good in this. She's in a lot of TV. She was in the second and third movie, third movie very briefly. She's in Warlock 3. She's on the new creep show for Shudder. She actually shows back up in one of the later sequels in kind of an interesting way that does connect back to this first and second movie. When I was revisiting these sequels, I had no idea. Just it completely blanked out that that was an element of that particular movie the first time around that I saw it. Yeah, I joked with you offline that uh, she reminds me, especially in the second movie, but in both, both these movies, she reminded me of a young Winona Ryder, like I even just the that. way she looked. Yeah, a little bit. In this movie, there were scenes, especially in the second movie, where I was like, if you told me this was a Winona Ryder, I would have believed you because it was they were kind of identical to me. Apparently, Jennifer Tilly auditioned for this role originally, which uh, interesting. would have been very different and interesting. So she could have been part of Hellraiser and, and Chucky, Child's yeah. Play. Andrew Robinson plays Larry slash Rory in the novella, I guess. But uh, he is most well known for playing the villain in Dirty Harry. Yeah. He's Scorpio. He's the Zodiac analog in that movie. That's quite range because like in this movie, he is very good at playing like the hapless yeah. husband father. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You mentioned his name is Rory in the novella and in, in the novella. He's not Kirstie's dad. He's a friend. Yep. Yeah. There, there's like a group of friends. To me, that's the most notable change. But doing, I mean, there's a few changes, but that's the biggest sort of change is that they put Kirstie into the, the daughter role. 
Yeah, Kirsty still kind of carries a flame for him, despite yeah, knowing denial, that he's yeah. now engaged and getting married. Yeah. And so she goes to check on him, and that's kind of where oh, she gets that's how that happens. Story. Yeah, yeah. But I do like how in this movie, I, I think that's a great way that they change it, especially by Clive, because it adds that element of her own uncle is the one trying to do all this awful shit. Oh, it's super creepy. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, and yeah, he's yeah. very lecherous towards her and kind of rapey yeah. towards her. Yeah. And it adds that next level of evil and insanity to him that works yeah. really well in this movie. Andrew Robinson was also in a lot of TV stuff. He was in Charlie Varick and The Drowning Pool. He was also on the soap Ryan's Hope, which I only mention because a lot of people that we've discussed on all these different movies have all been on Ryan's Soap. I mean, I know that, that was like a big soap mm. back in the day, but geez, I'm the amount of horror people that came from that. Mask, Cobra, Child's Play 3, Pumpkinhead 2, Deep Space 9. So he's been in a bunch of stuff over the years. <laughs> the lead of the third one is the big Deep Space 9 actress, right? The reporter. Yes, she is one. One of the leads of that show as well, too, which kind of threw me off. But what you just said about Larry, it kind of wraps back around to what I was talking about earlier with Frank as a character. Again, kind of going back to that whole idea, what I find interesting is Frank wanting to get back to his human form. And for all we know, there's ostensibly like no actual way that he can rebuild his own body. He can only ever have a replica body. Right. That whole aspect of him having to like subsume other men in order to regrow his own body. But then for whatever reason, why can he not also regrow his skin? Right. Right. He like takes Frank's skin by choice, seemingly. But what's interesting is like if you compare those two brothers, Frank is certainly younger, in better shape, hotter by traditional standards. He is definitely more of a like sexual, aggro, confident guy. And Larry is absolutely kind of a baby. You know, he's kind of a wuss in this movie. Yeah. Julia definitely walks all over him. He's the older brother, but he is definitely not the one who is in charge, if that makes sense. Right. And so it's interesting that Frank chooses to take take his skin at the end why would frank want to be his doofy older brother who's older in worse shape and not as sexy but i think it's just kind of more to that line of i can conveniently hide my true evil nature because i am the status quo of what is considered normal i am generic handsome white male and so i can kind of pass and blend in and people won't immediately assume that i'm a fucking lech right and so now if he takes takes Larry's skin, it kind of pushes that disguise even further, you know, and now he can blend in even easier because now, especially nobody would assume that he is the type of evil that he really is under the surface. And it's so upsetting too, at the end when Kirsty shows back up and you know, they've killed Larry yeah. and you know that he's wearing the skin and you just watch in horror as Kirsty realizes little by little what's going on. Just that entire weird, uncanny thing of realizing your parent is not who they say they are. Yeah. They even go so far as he's got on contacts to change his eye color. And the fact that you would not be able to look at your parent and talk to them and not notice something's wrong. There's something uncanny about you, you know, and then it literally just took the like come to daddy line for her to realize, oh, shit, this is not right. at all the thing, you know, and that's always like a fun thing I hear from other actors in interviews and stuff like that where playing two different roles 
or being able to turn and do like a different aspect of the same character is always fun. Actors tend to like doing that. So face off. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Andrew Robinson getting to play kind of the dopey loving father, husband character. And then at the end of the movie, just becoming this complete evil, awful person, you know, and just being able to play both sides of that. Yeah, it's great. He pulls it off well too. And then of course the last line as he's being ripped apart was in the script, simply, fuck you and because that is not entirely elegant or catchy or interesting that's where he improv the line jesus wet (laughs) (laughs) which is now like an iconic ridiculous thing it's the shortest line in the bottle yep (laughs) well we talked about uh and colin you were the one who brought this up in prince of darkness your god of plutonium cannot protect you like that being such a good line yeah yeah i feel like jesus wept is also kind of just along those lines of just a great horror line from like such a creepy moment it's right before he explodes when like all the skin and muscle and tissue has been stretched to its extreme with all the hooks from pinhead when i was a kid i remember people using that as almost like a curse they huh. use it to swear you know they break a dish and my you know they'd be like oh jesus wept i mean i remember it very vividly you know, i was like what is that all about why they why do they say that and the, the whole thing is it's a, the shortest line in the bible and then he just turned it into something really creepy yeah <laughs> it works really well because i've never heard that i never heard that being used as like a curse word i was yeah. about to say i think derek you and i grew up too far into the deep south <laughs> where yeah nobody would yeah. say something like that lord forbid i've definitely never heard anybody actually say that well and i'm so. I probably <laughs> yeah by the time we got to the 90s when you and i were growing up hellraiser was such a part of pop culture would it be too much to say that like it completely changed that phrase like in a way yeah possibly <laughs> i mean it claimed it for sure yeah so speaking of frank sean chapman plays frank pre-skinning <laughs> he was in a pretty notorious british movie called scum from the 70s underworld which was one of the two screenplays that barker wrote that were made before that he didn't like and not the vampire verse werewolves underworld but the one from the 80s yeah, yeah. yeah he was in a lot of brit tv he's in gangster number one and a mighty heart Oliver Smith that played skinless Frank. He was also in just like a ton of Brit TV, but you know, I'll admit it always baffles me and makes me realize like just how much stuff I've still not seen when I go through somebody's IMDb and they've got over a hundred credits and it's literally all just never heard of this, never heard of this, never heard of this. Cool. Lance Henriksen was originally offered the role of Frank and he turned it down because he didn't want to commit to sequels, but he (laughs) appears in the eighth movie. So he definitely still makes his way into Hellraiser. Jesus. He missed his chance to appear in the best movie in the franchise. And he later comes back for the eighth sequel. Yeah. And it could have been interesting because Lance Henriksen at that time, obviously he's younger, right? And like, he's not an unhandsome guy. There is definitely something rugged, sexual about Lance Henriksen, certainly. So it would have been interesting to see him as Frank because, you know, Lance Henriksen has that edge to him so i think that could have been very very interesting all said and done had they gone that route that's the thing he had done genre or yeah because he had did aliens the year prior right the the same year that this 
came out, he did uh, Near Dark. Yeah. So like, yeah, yeah. He, had, he had totally been doing genre stuff. Absolutely. And then he went on to do Pumpkinhead. He was in the first yeah. Pumpkinhead, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah, like it's interesting that he turned this one down. And he did Man's Best Friend. Yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> I jokingly told Heather she grew up with a Rottweiler, a big Rottweiler, huge. She kind of has told me over and over like, I want a Rottweiler. I keep telling her, no, we've got to show you this movie. Man's best friend. You don't want a Rottweiler. <laughs> so yeah. Lastly, that gets us to Doug Bradley, who played lead Cenobite, aka Hell Priest, aka Pinhead. Of course, he would kind of stick around in other Barker stuff. He was a Nightbreed, written in blood. He was in sequels for the Prophecy, Pumpkinhead, and Wrong Turn franchises. He's in The Cottage, which is actually a pretty interesting, low-key Brit horror thriller from the last couple of years that has Andy Circus in it. He. He's in Book of Blood from several years back, and he does a ton of voice work. He has a voice for it. He absolutely has a voice for it. Yeah, totally. I can believe that. One thing I noticed looking at everybody's credits, obviously Higgins, Lawrence, and Bradley all came back for Hellbound for the second one. But Lawrence, Robinson, and Bradley all provide voice work for a Netflix anime based on the Dota video games. And then I started digging through that a little bit. Apparently, Tony Todd, Jeffrey Combs, Cassandra Peterson, a.k.a. Elvira, Robert England, Barbara Crampton, and John Kassir, a.k.a. The Crypt Keeper, they all also provide voice work for this Netflix anime show. <laughs> so, real heavy on horror people. I've heard that the Dota anime is actually, like, top-notch, <laughs> so that makes sense. I don't know anything about Dota as a video game, but it definitely was just like, okay, yeah, fantasy, I guess that leads into, like, some horror makes sense. Okay, cool. So, real quick, let's just kind of run through the sequels in no depth necessarily. Just calling it now. I don't think we're ever going to talk these sequels as actual episodes. Uh, you don't think we can discuss the intricacies of the camera Cenobite and the CD Cenobite? <laughs> the two <laughs> weird twins that meld together into one, like, Twinabite? There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, like I mentioned, Hellbound colon Hellraiser 2 literally came out the next year. They greenlit this movie while the first movie was wrapping up production. Like they kind of knew already, like we've got something cool on our hands. Let's go ahead and start developing a sequel. Like I mentioned, Tony Randall was kind of handpicked by Barker to helm number two. He had already directed Defcon 4, Children of the Night. He did Amityville 1992. It's about time. The one about the clock that I discussed a while back. <laughs> Speaking of cursed Speaking objects, of cursed objects, yeah, uh, the cursed object franchise there too is yeah. the Amityville franchise. He also directed Ticks, which I watched not too long ago. Once Vinegar Syndrome put out their 4K of that. So Kirstie wakes up in the Chenard Institute for the Insane. She befriends another traumatized and puzzle-obsessed girl named Tiffany. There's kind of a Ripley-Newt thing between the two of them where she's very protective of Tiffany. Dr. Chenard is kind of the megalomaniacal head of this hospital. He is also just coincidentally obsessed with hell and puzzle boxes and gaining power. And uh, of course, he sees Kirstie as the final key he needs to access the world of the Cenobites. He resurrects Julia. The whole Julia resurrection is amazing. By yeah, the way. it's it nuts. The remnants of Pinhead's original human identity kind of comes out and has this whole back and forth with Christy where she's trying to help him. It's interesting because the story is much larger in scope 
And it's incredibly ambitious, but right from the start, this is where the studio starts really kneecapping the shit out of these movies. So this movie had budget issues. New World Pictures was going through bankruptcy at the time. So all of a sudden they were like, cool, you have like half the budget to work with. Larry was originally meant to be involved, but Andrew Robinson declined to return. So all of that was reworked. There were scenes filmed with the engineer for the second movie, and that was all kind of scrapped. But this film is kind of a turning point where the franchise really turns away from having the human characters as the villains. And then from here on out, it kind of solely focuses on the Cenobites as the villains instead of just being this Greek chorus kind of thing. And Pinhead fully becomes the marketing. And two kind of also starts the idea of the jokey pun Cenobite because the doctor, once he becomes Cenobite doctor, <laughs> it's nothing but puns. Yeah, he does doctors in. The doctor is in. I yeah. recommend amputation. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> I know it's a hot take for a lot of people. That's why I think I still like the newest one more than the second one because the second one was working so well with when it was so focused on Julia. The doctor does have the best line maybe of the first two movies where he says, and to think, I hesitated. That was a good line. Yeah, Yeah, that's some good shit. And that's always a villain trope that I love, too, where, like, the villain hesitates to grasp the power that's finally in front of them. And then, of course, once they are in full god mode, yeah, to think I hesitated. (laughs) (laughs) To think I hesitated, yeah. (laughs) It's right up there with that line from M. Bison in the Street Fighter movie. Yeah. For me, it was Tuesday. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, that gets us to Hellraiser 3, which came out in 1992. Boy, was this movie... This movie was stupid as fuck, but yeah. it was a lot of fun. <laughs> so I will say two, three, and four were all written by Peter Atkins. He was one of yeah. Barker's buds. So he's like somebody that Barker kind of approved of as far as doing these movies. He's actually a pretty good novelist, too. He's done a few novels that were pretty great. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm thinking one's called Morning Star. Huh. I okay. I got to look that up afterward, too, then. I didn't know that he actually wrote novels. Yeah. I was looking at the rest of his filmography, and I was like, oh, he wrote all the Wishman movies okay but yeah so hellraiser 3 is directed by anthony hickox who also did the waxwork movies and sundown the vampire in retreat and warlock armageddon all of which we have talked about here and there on this show waxwork rules by the way so but uh yeah this one follows a rookie reporter played by terry farrell from like you said deep space nine she's investigating all these strange deaths that are linked to a nightclub where the douchey owner has purchased a strange totem pillar art piece which happens to be where Pinhead is currently imprisoned. And Pinhead is literally in this weird post for an hour of the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this one fell real 90s to me. But yeah, he eventually breaks <laughs> out, makes a lot of gimmicky Cenobites, and, you know, raises hell. The original script featured Farrell's character and Pinhead merging into one being. And then at the end, her agreeing to become Pinhead's cursed bride in exchange for, like, professional success, which, what a fucking bad deal that you agreed to become the damned bride of this hell bureaucrat in exchange for being the hottest local TV reporter. That doesn't balance out at all, but whatever. <laughs> Zach Galligan from Gremlins and Wax 
Network has a cameo in this one. But yeah, like I mentioned, New World Pictures went bankrupt and Universal wanted to purchase the franchise. That fell through. Ultimately, it ended up at Dimension Films, which is Miramax's sub-label for genre pictures. That's where the Weinsteins kind of started getting their fingers into it. Yeah. So three was their first theatrical release. And weirdly enough, Disney would buy Miramax like a year later. So like technically, Pinhead is a Disney prince, maybe? Or a princess, or a Disney Cenobite. <laughs> Julia's an evil Disney queen, yeah. The home video rights for this movie in particular are kind of fucking weird. It gets bounced back and forth between Paramount and Lionsgate, and then back to Paramount, and then Miramax. This whole fiasco with the Hellraiser films bouncing around and the wine scenes getting involved. This is where that idea like where they were going to do a pinhead versus Michael Myers movie or they were trying to because the wine scenes were also had their fingers in the Halloween franchise. Yeah. And weirdly enough, it kind of got closer to being made than you think um, because this was riding off the Freddy versus Jason train. Yeah. There was actually apparently a meeting between Clyde Barker and John Carpenter that was they were both included and both signed off on the project. That's wild. Both of them were like, fuck it. What do we (laughs) have to lose with these characters? Let them fight yeah that's wild of course it never went anywhere but yeah all this nonsense is the reason why all of those movies that cullen held up and showed us a minute ago they're all from different distributors yeah some are arrows some are weird paramount boxes some are dimension like they all the rights are all over the place Arrow, when they put out their big box set a couple of years ago, only included one through three, despite one through four all being theatrical movies. And it was strictly because like the rights for three and four were kind of weird at the time. Again, just weird different combinations of which movies are included in which packs. So yeah, it's from this point is where it's been a mess. Yeah. Now what's wild is Tony Randall was attached from the beginning to direct three. He had done two right? The studio dropped him because they were worried that he was going to make a movie that was too bleak, which it's fucking Hellraiser. What do you expect? (laughs) And then they apparently offered it to Peter Jackson, who turned it down because he didn't want to do something that was so serious. Because this is Peter Jackson, like, Dead Alive, The Frighteners, that era, right? Right. Barker apparently disapproved of Anthony Hickox because he had just made horror comedies, right? So, yeah, three ends up in, like, kind of a weird spot all said and done there's one scene in three that i have to shout out it's when she like runs to the church the priest is like what's wrong my daughter and she's just like he's coming the demon's coming for us the priest's like girl demons don't exist they're all parables they're all religious parables and all that and then Pinhead bursts open the door and she's like, then what the fuck is that? And points at Pinhead. <laughs> and then from then on, Pinhead has like this weird moment on like the church altar where he's yeah. mocking God and like pins the out of his cross head and flips up. So, yeah, yeah so, it's goofy. As yeah, it gives him, and then like rips a piece of his flesh and like gives it to the priest like it's a Eucharist and like flames are shooting out of the chalice and all that. Like as stupid as this movie is, like I did appreciate how it kind of went there. Yeah, and the church in South Carolina where they shot that by way was thrilled by all of that <laughs> yeah, scene. Yeah, I fucking bet. Yeah. yeah. I guess you're going to move on to Hellraiser Bloodline. I was just going to 
mention that out of all like the movie posters ironically enough i actually dig the hellraiser bloodline poster the most because it's just like pinhead standing in the shadows of space above earth yeah so hellraiser bloodline from 96 this is like most horror sequels where it goes to space right (laughs) so this was directed by kevin yeager he was a effects guy who had done stuff with friday the 13th part four night run elm street two through four freddy's nightmares like you mentioned earlier the hidden the bill and ted movies but then stuff like glory and face off and mission impossible 2 and adaptation by the way colin how far in this franchise have you gone again oh i think i've watched uh the, i've watched through bloodline okay through bloodline okay i don't i don't remember bloodline at all but uh i've watched through it so this one has Bruce Ramsey, who, by the way, is not Tim Curry. <laughs> he plays three members of the Lamarchand family over like three different time periods. There's the 1700s Paris where he's the creator of the puzzle box and they summon this demon named Angelique, who is like from an older version of hell. Fucking Adam Scott is in this, weirdly enough. Sure. We have modern day New York where the descendant, again, still the same actor, is playing an architect who builds a skyscraper puzzle box. His wife in that segment is Kim Myers, who is not Meryl Streep, who is kind of the final girl in Not Run Elm Street 2. And then we go to the 22nd century where the last (laughs) merchant descendant designs a puzzle box space station to trap and destroy the Cenobites. Pinhead just kind of appears in each story and just kind of is always there. And what's interesting is this Angelique character that shows up. She's very interesting. That's different. That's kind of a new avenue for this series to explore. And then she's kind of just immediately sidelined once Pinhead shows back up and kind of takes the spotlight again. But it's interesting because, again, she is kind of this demon from an older version of hell. And he is representing kind of the new ordered hell. And they're a little bit antagonistic Jaeger clashed with the producers on this one on everything creatively he left the production Joe Chappelle who directed Halloween 6 Phantoms and The Wire and Fringe oh god he did Halloween 6 yeah he was the original choice to direct this one and then they brought him back in to finish it and then because he didn't reshoot enough content he couldn't get a director credit on it either so this movie is released as an Alan Smithy joint, which that's what credit you have to have when the director wants their name taken off or the director drops out or whatever, which again causes this one's rights to be like weirdly in flux from time to time. Stuart Gordon and Guillermo del Toro were both attached at one Mm. point in time early on, and they both kind of turned it down due to like the obvious studio fuckery with the budget at the time. Because again, this is where like the Weinsteins were firmly in control of this franchise. So everything was trying to be done quicker, cheaper, easier. But yeah, this is easily one of the more ambitious entries. And the story is absolutely ridiculous because Barker and Atkins are still involved. But the studio wanting to cheap out as much as possible is what kind of grounds this movie, unfortunately. And this is where, in my opinion, it falls off. Yeah, because doesn't it become direct-to-video now? Everything's direct-to-video from here on out, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, the covers certainly look direct-to-video. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Hellraiser Inferno is the fifth one. This one was from the year 2000, directed by Scott Derrickson. This was one of his, I think this was his first movie. Um, Obviously, Scott Derrickson, who directed Sinister, Exorcist of Emily Rose, Doctor Strange, and The Black Phone that is currently out right now. 
Paul Harris Boardman wrote this one. So contrary to like the urban legend that from here on out, they're all bullshit scripts. No, Paul Harris Boardman wrote this one. They went in with this as a pitch. They wrote this original. He wrote Urban Legends, Final Cut, Emily Rose, Deliver Us From Evil, Devil's Not, which are all Derrickson movies, and Archive 81 that Derek, both you and I really liked. He wrote that. I really liked Archive 81, yeah. So this one, Craig Sheffer, who weirdly enough is the lead from Nightbreed, he plays a sleazy detective who likes puzzles, sleight of hand magic, and neglecting his family to do blow and bang randos. <laughs> so he discovers the puzzle box at a weird occult ritual crime scene. This was the one where you sent me the scene where it's him like yelling on the phone, then it cuts to him in a car and it's just shaky cam with a curtain in the background. Yes. And him like doing this with the wheel. They literally yeah. <laughs> are shooting him against the black curtain where he's supposed to be driving and they're just shaking the camera to make it look like he's driving. Yes. Yeah. You're not going to go in detail on e- each one of these sequels, are no, you? That's I'm, I'm <laughs> okay. Just like, I'm, we're we're blowing right. through because these are just bananas. I just want you to realize how bananas these are and how you saved yourself some time. But yeah, he's chasing this serial killer called the engineer. Of course. Totally not the villain. James Remar shows up uh, with a super fake beard john taturo's brother is also in this one there's also some terrible cgi and there's a weird cowboy scene in this one where he gets beat up by two kung fu cowboys one wearing all black one wearing all white and i thought about it for a minute i was like oh yeah this has got to be where david lynch got inspiration for the cowboy character in mantra <laughs> anyway so now is where they really all become uh. oh we just dusted off a script that was like a seven knockoff and added a pinhead scene to the end of right. it, right? So six through eight are all directed by Rick Boda. He was the director of photography for the show Werewolf and 20 episodes of Tales from the Crypt. He was the DP for Demon Knight and the House on Haunted Hill remake. All three of these, again, are existing scripts that Tim Day and or Carl Dupree reworked. <laughs> so the Weinsteins and Dimension, their understanding of the rights was you have to release a new Hellraiser movie every X years in order to retain the rights. So their scheme was we're going to shoot all three of these movies at exactly the same time, same director, shoot all of them in like fucking Bulgaria, and then we'll just release one every couple of years. So that's where six through eight all fit in. Eight was the last one with Doug Bradley, right? Yes. Yeah. So the first one is Hellseeker. This is number six. This one came out in 2002. This is where Kirstie comes back, but she gets fridged immediately. Have fun. Wow. So we then spend the rest of the movie with her douchey cheating husband, Dean Winters, aka Chaos Man from the Allstate commercials. And so it's just him kind of cluelessly stumbling through trying to solve the mystery of her death. Everyone was put under a gag order who made this movie because the Weinsteins were like, don't talk about it whatsoever. Lawrence did not give a fuck. And Lawrence broke her gag order and just revealed, yeah, it was an awful shoot. The Weinsteins were terrible to work with. I was paid enough to like make a payment on a refrigerator, you know, like just she was not happy. So many of these later ones just fall into the weird, you lived your life like a douchebag. Now we're going to take you to hell and make you pay. And, And that's it. That's kind of the formula for a lot of these middle ones. 
The next one, Deader, came out in 2005. Carrie Wurr plays a reporter who is sent by, like, Diet Pepsi Julian Sands to go investigate a death cult in Eastern Europe. Which, how convenient, because that's where they're shooting all these movies, right? And the leader of this cult seemingly has the power to bring people back from the dead because he's using the puzzle box and, like, using the power from that to bring these people back to life. And, of course, the Cenobites are like, we don't like that. Hellraiser Hellworld. This is the one I was kind of surprised by. Get the fuck out, really? This one also came out in 2005. So Henry Cavill is in this when he was a baby. Catherine Winnick from Vikings is in this as well. And so this is the video game one, in air quotes. So it's all these super hot, (laughs) cool friends who are playing this addictive MMORPG of hellraiser world evil goes online as a tagline i see yeah and the funny thing is <laughs> that's where it stops as far as video game shit's concerned i was fully expecting this one to be like tron where they just get sucked into the video game <laughs> that would have been kind of badass yeah i was yeah. fully expecting <laughs> yeah. that but no instead they all get invited to a marketing party for the like new expansion of the video game and of course Totally not the villain Lance Henriksen is the guy who's throwing the party. This one was like super new metal 2000s in the most ridiculous way. This one especially was just a lot of teenage characters like, oops, I opened the puzzle box. Oh no, like I didn't actually do anything wrong. Well, fuck me. Guess I'm going to die now. This one felt more like a slasher, but there's just so many super dated, weird, goofy things. Like they are at this party with all these other sexy people and they can put on these masks to make themselves anonymous and the masks have a number and then you can pick up a Nokia brick phone, which they feature prominently constantly throughout the movie. They're constantly <laughs> showing off the, like Nokia C270 or whatever it was. And you can like T9 text the person's number on the mask that you want to like randomly hook up with. It's ludicrous, but this one was fun in the like trashy 2000s American teen dimension horror movie kind of way. Like it's the most new metal of all the Hellraiser movies. And like I said, Derek, not I liked this movie, but I think this would be a candidate for like a good commentary track because this is okay. ridiculous. Yeah, I'd, I'd be on board for that. The Hellraiser Revelations, I know because... They ruined Pinhead's design in this. Yeah, this is the one where people refer to Pinhead as Fat Pinhead. And being a fat man, I will say, it's not that he's fat. It's that he has a baby face. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. The actor has a little bit too much of a baby face once he's shaved and hairless. And so he looks kind of chubby in the face. It's the eyes. That's something about the eyes. That's part of it, too. So fucking stupid. Yeah. This is where the Weinsteins and Dimension kind of figured out that they were a little bit screwed. They thought the deal was we just have to release a movie every so many years, which is the reason why they just buckled up and filmed three of them at the same time thinking let's just bank a bunch and just put them out little by little. No, the catch was you have to have a movie in production production every so many years. So then it was like, oh shit, we got to get a movie together. This movie was made start to finish in three weeks. That's it which is ludicrous. I'm looking up screenshots from it, and he's more Uncle Fester with <laughs> nails in his head. Yeah. I see that. Than, than the Hell Breeze. Yeah. yeah. Victor Garcia directed this one. Gary Tunnicliffe wrote this one, which he's the guy who did effects for all the Hellraiser movies from three on and the Candyman movies and Halloween sequels. He was just a makeup guy. Yeah. He also wrote 
and directed uh, the next one, Judgment. Yes. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> Revelations is literally just these two waspy couples in their Beverly Hills mansion, and they're just like, oh my god, what happened to our sons? They disappeared. We'll never find out what happened to them, I guess. And then it just turns out, because you're watching a lot of bad shaky cam footage of them, they, like, go to Mexico, in air quotes, aka they literally just went to, like, a warehouse on the other side of LA, and then to, like, a Mexican restaurant. And so they, like, go to Mexico to party and do drugs, and and have sex with random people and they find the puzzle box and of course it takes them and then the rest of the movie is just these couples arguing and screaming at each other and then you find out oh well the wife of one couple was cheating with the husband from another and oh by the way the like husband from that one was also sleeping with the other family's daughter like there's all this back and forth like that meanwhile it keeps cutting to pinhead who's literally just it's like he's in the next room and it's just the room with chains and he's just pacing back and forth like oh God, just open the box already. Like, it's just him literally pacing like a tiger, just mad that he can't go and rip these people apart. (laughs) And then, of course, at the very end, like, he shows up and that's what happens, right? It's 64 minutes. It's ludicrous. And this is one that, like I said, they made it in three weeks contractually. And this is one where because they had to have a theatrical release of it, they released it like in one downtown L.A. theater in the middle of the afternoon on a Tuesday and only the cast and crew showed up. And then they were like, cool, clap. We did it. It aired theatrically. So that was it. We're giving too much time to these movies. Judgment was the most recent one. Also written and directed by Tunnicliffe. It's two detective brothers and a lady detective. They're tracking a serial killer. I saw fucking Heather Langenkamp was in this yes, one. Heather Langenkamp oh. is in this for like 30 seconds. And she's like second build. Meanwhile, Pinhead and these new Cenobite-ish characters like the Auditor and the Assessor, they all set up shop in the original cotton house because now like the puzzle boxes no longer work okay society is too modern and the puzzle boxes no longer work the way they should so they just turned the house itself into a gateway the director himself gary tunnicliffe plays the auditor john gulliger plays the assessor like it's just kind of ludicrous so that's it and then obviously we have this new one what's wild is again during that interim period after eight there were all these other different attempts to remake the franchise and start it from scratch. So the guys who made the movie Inside, they were tapped at one point in time. Hmm. Pascal Lachier, who did Martyrs, was attached at one point in time. And Patrick Lussier, who was the editor for all of the later Wes Craven movies, and then he also directed Dracula 2000 and the My Bloody Valentine remake and Drive Angry. He was attached and he was talking about William Fickner playing Pinhead, which that could have been cool. All three of them, all three of them were like, oh, we left over creative differences with the Weinsteins. We didn't want to make it PG-13. We didn't want to tone it down. We didn't want to, like, do all this dumb marketing. All of them were just like, fuck the Weinsteins. We're not dealing with their budgets. We're not dealing with their tone and marketing, blah, blah, blah. So then they had to make Revelations the very last minute because they literally just ran out of time. Clive Barker announced in 2013, oh, I'm going to do the remake finally. I'm going to prioritize practical effects and it's going to be R-rated and Doug Bradley's coming back crickets and then all of a sudden they announce oh hellraiser judgment's coming out like next week 
what? You know, and people started asking Clive Barker and he's like, I don't know. I don't know anything about this. I didn't sign off on this. I didn't approve this. I don't know what this is. I gave the Weinsteins my script years ago and they ghosted me. Then at this point, obviously, Harvey's in jail by good riddance. All of the Weinstein slash Miramax stuff is up in the air. So the rights have now fully reverted back to Clive Barker. So he now officially has the rights back to the franchise. He worked with David Goyer and David Bruckner, who directed the new one. David Bruckner, who did The Ritual, which we've got an episode on. Ritual is great. The Night House, which came out last year, which is great. Which uh, I think it was uh, Patrick Bromley about this movie. He was jokingly saying it was his favorite sequel to Hellraiser, his favorite like new Hellraiser movie. Uh, yeah, kind of. I guess it's very Hellraiser esque. Yeah, where that where it goes, it's, it's good. I would recommend. Yeah. It. So yeah, this new one that just debuted on Hulu. It was fully signed off on by Barker, stamp of approval. It was written by Ben Collins and Luke Petrowski, who did Super Dark Times and The Night House, and the upcoming adaptation of Paul Tremblay's Head Full of Ghosts which that'll be cool nice. once that comes out. And yeah, the new one yeah. is the perpetually fucked up teen Riley and her sketchy new boyfriend. They break into a storage unit of a billionaire sadist who went missing under mysterious circumstances. That's always great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And just, of course, all they find is the puzzle box. What could go wrong? It's time. Greater delights await to see you proceed feed it their blood their pain all for us what is it you pray for Like we mentioned earlier, Jamie Clayton plays the priest. Odessa Azion plays Riley. Clayton's portrayal is different than Bradley's, but I still feel yeah, felt like it but was in a good way. Yeah, I still felt like it was very apropos of the character. Yeah. Again, it just it felt like the character is unknowable. Yeah. Again. She's just as mysterious, just as unknowable, just as regal, just as commanding and intimidating and powerful and scary, but also very sexual and very sexless and very grotesque, yet very beautiful. It's all of the conundrums that like a Cenobite should be. Yeah. 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 And the novella describes them as, as that specifically as sexless, but desirable, but also really fucked up. Yeah. And, and I, yeah. I felt like it was the best design since the first one. The first two, really. This movie has problems. Like, don't get me wrong, it's not a perfect movie, but like compared to what the rest of the franchise is, oh yeah, it's like leaps and bounds above the most of them. I really dig the different configurations of the puzzle box. Yeah. Really dig Jamie Clayton as the priest. A lot of people are aggravated with the Riley character, but I thought the Riley character was true to somebody who has struggled with severe addiction. Riley's my favorite part of the of the new movie. She's, I mean, as far as characters goes, I think she's great. Yeah, I think Riley was awesome. So I don't know what those people are talking about. Yeah, and like that blows my mind. And that's the thing; she is frustrating as a character. You want to kind of just grab by the shoulders and shake her a little. Bit. Bit. But that doesn't mean she's a bad character. That means she's flawed. That means she's relatable. That means she's realistic. Like it is a very good lead character because she feels you can relate to her and put yourself in her place and you can be frustrated with her because she fucks up and she continues to make bad decisions. But that doesn't make her a bad character at all. It makes her a great character. 
I felt like she really felt like a Clive Barker character. Yeah. And I'd say the first 15 minutes of the movie, I remember thinking to myself, wow, this feels very much like a Clive Barker or a Poppy Z. Bright story. Yeah. She felt right to me for that. It's so, if I were ranking it, I would put this as my third favorite Hellraiser movie. Yeah, I definitely liked it. Probably will go back and forth with this one and and Hellraiser 2 for me personally, but they're kind of both neck and neck. And I don't know, I just, I think it was a good portrayal and exploration of what addiction actually does. Um, Not just to the person it's affecting, but like everyone around them. I think a lot of that frustration towards her is a genuine representation of someone who does struggle with severe addiction. And I don't think it was uh, negative or positive. I just think it was. I'm going to kind of spoil the new Hellraiser, so skip ahead a couple seconds if you haven't seen Hellraiser on Hulu yet. That final exchange between her and the priest of you chosen the lament configuration because you're basically just going to carry the weight of all this destruction like your actions have brought to everyone around you. That's such a dark but cathartic way to end that story. Yes. It's great. It's a double-sided like gut punch of an ending. That was such a good moment in that movie. I hope it continues to be well-received, and honestly, I hope this one does well for Hulu, because I would like to see more of Jamie Clayton portrayal as the priest, and see where else we can go with this franchise. If this same team of people are all down to come back, I would love it. If it's the same group of people, you know, I think if they can find people who are of equal talent to write and direct another one cool, you know, I would just like to see this group back because I think this one was really well written tonally. I love the look and the feel of it. David Bruckner's movies have all been really solid and I've enjoyed all of them. So I would like to have them back. And then obviously, certainly Jamie Clayton. Yeah, I wish it was a little trimmed because two hours is long for a horror movie, especially. Yeah, it could have been a little bit tighter in some of the like walking around looking for creatures creepy stuff sequences going back to the the original hellraiser part of what makes it such a masterpiece is it's a tight movie it's barely over 90 minutes long yeah. an hour and a half i'm finding more and more unless you're like fucking stanley kubrick the best horror movies we've watched are right around that 90 minute mark every time that's why i really enjoyed hellraiser 1987 the original one last quick question colin and this is kind of a hokey question i'm going to kind of put you on the spot but if you had to say what of your work is the most inspired by hellraiser and Clyde Barker, would you say? I like everything you've written and worked on. I don't know. That's a tough one. I would absolutely say the unsound is very, and I don't know that it was a conscious thing, but the unsound is absolutely heavily influenced by Hellbound, the second movie, I think, when I really look at it. I think it draws a lot from that. That's probably the one that I would say is the most in that Clive Barker universe, probably, you know, that style of thing. It, it introduces sort of a mythology that I never got to play with beyond that series. But there's some interesting stuff there that, that I'll probably do something with at some point. But uh, that's probably the one I would say is the most Barker-esque. That's an interesting choice because out of the stuff, at least that I can think of off the top of my head, The Unsound was one of your more surreal yeah. or works that i've read and i know aaron you mentioned regression as being kind of like the most hellraiser-esque to you now that you mentioned the unsound because like it also the unsound even reminded me a little bit of like again going back to silent hill that game franchise and and those movies 
I think there is a connection between Hellraiser and Silent Hill as well. So all of that kind of fitting together. Yeah. Oh, we didn't mention, by the way, I know we're, we're moving on to ending the show. Uh, you're also in the middle of writing Basilisk, which is great. One of the best ongoing horror titles out there. I think at the time this recording, there's 12 or 13 issues out. Issue 12 is the final issue. Just came out. It is the final yeah, issue. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm on issue nine, I think, yeah. but I have all the issues. So issue 12 wraps it up. Hell yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed Basilisk. All right, cool. Well, uh, do we have any final thoughts on Hellraiser before we close up? Look, it's a great movie. I, I don't know. There's something I was thinking about it when I was rewatching it just recently. There's a quality of the film. It, it sounds like such a minor thing, but there's something, there's a graininess to it that looks sort of, uh, gives it sort of this earthy quality that I think has never <laughs> been duplicated in any of the other Hellraiser movies. But it, there's something about the way that movie looks that is unique to it. I don't know what they did, but I remember as I was watching it, it was like, no other movie looks like this. And I'm not talking about the yeah. effects. I'm not talking about the designs of the characters. I'm talking about the quality of the picture. <laughs> There's some sort of weird yeah. graininess that I can only pick up with that movie. Yeah, it definitely is very reminiscent of horror movies of that time period, specifically British horror movies of that time period. And because this movie is visually so dark, like the color palette of this movie is so dark, all of that stands out even harder, yeah. you know? It, yeah, I, I agree. Like, it's a very interesting-looking movie. I was kind of reading some other people's thoughts and opinions on it, and one thing I did find interesting to that point was somebody said, I saw this movie when I was way too fucking young. It burned it in my brain. I never watched it again but then when i was 34 years old i went into like a heavy metal bar and they were playing it on tv and i saw a completely out of context moment where there was nothing identifiable happening no you know puzzle right. box no pinhead nothing and i instantly knew what movie it was and if you can have that kind of effect with a movie that you make where somebody can have that level of recognition with it just instantly you've made something indelible for sure like you have made something very iconic and memorable that is going to stick around. So I think that says everything about this movie visually. Yeah. Again, it's very contained, surprisingly so, even with the themes being so surreal and bombastic. It's not kind to horror newbies in a surprising way, as like many of the other movies we've covered, especially for uh, those who are queasy. A lot of meat, a lot of tissue and all that, but it is kind of amazing, the effects of this movie. Yeah. I now understand why it's a timeless classic, and I now understand why for so long the Hellraiser fans are suffering, because they started with the top to bottom best one, the second one was a decent enough sequel, and then it just kind of started going off a cliff from there yeah. for years and years and years. I think... I think, Colin, with what you brought up, the idea between like the style of film and the lighting and everything, I think it kind of is relevant to like what's kind of being discussed now in real time of people forgetting how to light a film and light a scene because there's like that comparison of the original Halloween to the uh, shot from the trailer of the newest Halloween and the lighting is kind of fucked up by comparison and the one in the 70s looks better and it's more natural. And I think as much as I like the Hulu Hellraiser, the lighting in the original Hellraiser is so much better even in the dark you knowing understanding this is taking place in the dark whereas in the new Hellraiser even they are a victim of just making a scene way too fucking yeah, dark sure. to be realistic and so yeah I, I agree with you I think there's just not even a timelessness to it just something different and beyond yeah. anything else 
All right, cool, cool. Well, uh, that is going to be it for this episode on Hellraiser. And that is going to wrap up this year's season of Spoop. Happy Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween. Yes, happy Halloween. We did Christine. We did the curse videotape from Ringu Ring. And now we did the lament configuration from Hellraiser. Hell yeah. And finally got into some Clive Barker as well, which makes me happy. Yes. So cool. Cullen, thank you so fucking much. Thank man. you so this much. This was awesome. Thanks for having me. Again, Had a guys. great conversation. Appreciate it. Yeah. Listeners, go back and li- listen to our Prince of Darkness episode. That was the first episode yes. we had Cullen on. Cullen, what have you got coming up soon that you want to plug? I mean, we already mentioned the Harrow County Observer audio drama, and you mentioned Basilisk. You mentioned the sequel to The Ghoul Next Door. Har- Harrow County Kickstarter. Yeah, the Harrow County Kickstarter. Uh, definitely check that out. I mean, it's, it's still has 20 or so days i'm sure i've got a new book coming out from source point press called night walkers which is sort of an apocalyptic vampire story that's going to be starting up in a couple of months they just released like an ash can of it uh, like at new york comic-con okay Uh, i've got a new series from vault called door-to-door night by night which starts up in november which is basically about a door-to-door sales team that inadvertently falls into the job of monster hunting. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. (laughs) So that comes out on November 17th. It's the first issue of that. I have a new sort of a deluxe short graphic novella from Aftershock called A Foulness in the Walls is coming out also uh, November 17th from Aftershock. And then a ton of other horror stuff that is all in the works at this point. Hell yeah. I appreciate that uh, you work with everybody because it's great to like be able to support other smaller comic development and publishers. But yeah, most like yeah, most of your stuff's been like Boom Vault, Aftershock recently. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's cool. uh, you know the playing field is always shifting in the in the world of comics. So it's it's finding that path and keeping the lights on. Hell yeah. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, that is going to be it for this episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your movie monster boy, Aaron, and my cowardly coast, Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres. So, as usual, you can find us on social media at Watch If You Dare on Facebook and Twitter. You can download all of our episodes, everything, all the way back to episode one and going forward on pretty much any podcatcher you choose. So Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, (laughs) all of them, right? (laughs) We have a Spotify music playlist that is perfect for this time of year. If you are having a Halloween party soon, throw it on. It's just full of spoopy tracks from bands that we enjoy as well as horror movies that we enjoy and just general atmospheric stuff for the season. So that is definitely available. That is pinned to our Twitter if you want to go check it out. As always, thanks to my little brother, Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Party Gator, for the bumps, the beginning and ends of all the episodes that we record, including the season of Spoop One. Uh, so big thanks to him. Check out his stuff on Bandcamp. Uh, you can find him under Party Gator, Opossums, Big Clown, all the other groups that he is associated with. Throw him a couple bucks, get you some good music. Beyond that, Derek, do you have anything else to say? We thought we'd gone to the limits. We hadn't. She gave us an experience beyond limits. Pain and pleasure. Indivisible. Sally wept. (laughs) 